tonight, King Arthur declares Zorro the new King of England. Yes! Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpsons fans, brought to you by ThatShelf.com. Each week, we talk about a movie parodied on The Simpsons. Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the film, or maybe when we finally saw it, we realized, well, hey, that's where that Simpson joke comes from. Regardless, each week we pick one that one of us hasn't seen, or hasn't seen in a while, watch it, and come together to discuss. I'm your host, Adam Scholes, and joining me as always is the three-fingered Jack. <laughs> is the three-fingered Jack to my Alejandro Murrieta, my co-host, Nate Story. You know, it's funny, literally in my notes, I wrote, three-fingered Jack feels like a very Nate character. Like, I just Great. knew, I knew you were gonna love that. Well, I do love launching myself at people with a pickaxe. Uh, yeah, well, so, exactly. So that's probably where you're seeing the connection. Yeah, and in case it wasn't clear from that description, this week we watched Martin Campbell's 1998 Hollywood blockbuster, The Mask of Zorro, which you might remember from such Simpson episodes as season 11's E.I., E.I., annoyed grunt technically, but you know. And before we get started, I just, like I just want to say I am so excited to talk about this movie, Nate. It is such a bang. I got myself a big old glass of red wine, very and I'm nice. very very excited to tuck into this picture, this motion picture. Yeah, exactly. But before we get into the movie, this picture, uh, let's talk a little bit about the Simpsons episode parody. This episode was actually released 24 years ago today, November 7th, 1999. Directed by Bob Anderson and written by the very tall man himself. Ian Maxtone Graham. Yeah. This episode, I think, you know, I was looking through our database. It has the fifth highest number of movie references in the entire database. So with a grand total of 17 references. Wow. Um, so this is, despite being a later season episode, this is pretty heavy on the movie parodies. Yeah, it gets, they, get, they get kind of heavy again around this time in, in season 11. The episode with the most parodies is also from this season. Which oh, is beyond, beyond Blunderdome. Right. Okay. Well, that sort um, of tracks based on what that episode is about. So. Right. Right. Exactly. The other thing that's interesting about this one is that the references are pretty topical as far as The Simpsons mm-hmm. goes. They're not doing the usual thing in the earlier seasons of really like sticking to the classics. This is like pretty much ripped from the headlines as far as their writing headways go. Mask of Zorro, for example, is released basically a year before this. Um, so they're they're really moving quickly to parody it. Which, of course, based on the Simpsons production schedule, because everything is sort of done a year in advance of when it airs, they would have been writing this probably like when the film was in theater. So it yeah, was exactly. when they were writing, it was extremely topical. This is also kind of an interesting one, too, because we're starting to enter that territory of when I actually remember the episodes airing. Right. Like, remember watching them. And I don't necessarily remember the day I watched this episode, but I do remember us, like, in grade six, referencing this episode a lot. Like, we referenced Tamako. We were doing the glove slap. We Like, me yep. and my friend Tom Cameron, I remember, we used to sing glove slap at our desks <laughs> a lot to the point where our teacher would have to, like, threaten to separate us. Yep. But, yeah, it's just, it's kind of interesting that whenever I watch sort of the, like, season 10 onward because i wasn't a kid at that point like mm-hmm. i have that sort of more like clear memory of the show airing so it's always right. interesting in that regard too yeah totally i remember tamako very clearly of the latter day simpsons episodes in in at least the period we're covering this is like one of the ones that always sticks out in my memory as kind of a classic actually of this season i'd say 
it's so so memorable so yeah, yeah there's there's a lot of really great moments and lines in this the the one that made me <laughs> the one that made me laugh out loud like really hard and again this is classic me in that it's it's not even that funny a moment or that funny a line but there's something about it that just made me howl was <laughs> Homer goes and he and it's the like, sir, we're not supposed to put butter on the milk duds. And so he comes back to the theater and he's got a, a box of milk duds filled with hot buttered popcorn butter. And he I don't remember why he gets so excited, but he gets excited about something and he starts like he tilts Is he the ogling box. the woman on the screen? Yeah, maybe. And and Marge just goes, You're pouring hot butter on my lash. And I just I just howled at that. I don't know Twisted. why, but yeah, it's just yeah, it's I love Marge. So anytime Marge says something funny, it always gets me. But yeah. uh, and interestingly enough, I at least of the episodes we've been watching. I think this might have been the first time that we actually get to see the Springfield Googleplex, the articular yeah. Springfield Googleplex in an episode. That's right. I mean, it starts at the Springfield Googleplex, so that's kind of fun. And, you know, they're kind of doing the same thing that they usually do with television shows mm-hmm. with the movies, where they have like these sort of extended parodies of several different things, and then they're kind of commenting on them along the way. And, like, the first one is an ad, but it's a parody of Saving Private Ryan. Right. Um, which, again, also just came out by the standards of their writing schedule, directed by uh, Steven Spielberg. But this movie is also produced by Steven Spielberg. Right. And I think early days, there was he had the, the option to uh, direct it as well and decided not to so he could do that movie. So kind of interesting that these two are, like, paired together. But it's a, it's, it's a pretty great sequence. Yeah, I it, all of that whole f- sort of like front half of the movie, all the parodies that we get. There's the the sort of main parody of Mask of Zorro, obviously, but then we also get some other parodies thrown in there as well, right. which, which which makes it even more fun. Right, he like skewers the three musketeers. Sacre bleu, the deadly poke of Zorro. Fights the man in the iron mask. What N? What does N stand for? No, no, it's a Z. I am Zorro. Z for Zorro. There's the Scarlet Pimpernel and like all of that. And there's a, a, some European king. Uh, but <laughs> I think the running gag is just that like they're mishmashing all of these different eras together, which is kind of what a lot of like these movies do in order to like have their cake and eat it too. Is like, you know, they want it to be a Western, but they want to have like more modern technology, like Wild Wild West, or yeah, they exactly. want, you know. They just kind of want all these things to be together. They want ninjas to be in the Wild West, or they want, you know, just whatever, right? They're throwing it all together. And so this, I feel like this parody is mostly poking fun at that. The whole vibe of it is pretty spot on. And then the other thing that I love is the end credits. From the Z to the O to the double R-O, he's a dude in a mask from the barrio. Which, uh, I don't know if you know this, the rap over the end credits in this was actually improvised by Hank Azaria. Oh, no way. Yeah. And it was sort of making fun of, you know, the trend around this time. And this movie has this same sort of trend of, like, using pop music at the end of the movie, usually sort of commissioned for the movie right. by some, you know, current pop musician. And so apparently on the commentary, they were saying that 
you know the movie Deep Blue Sea with the shark? Yes, yes, I I think that was one of the first DVDs we owned. <laughs> Because it came really? with our DVD. Well, it came with our DVD player, not because oh, like we okay. wanted to own it, but like when my dad bought <laughs> the show DVD off play- the specs. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It came with like five of the like. Okay, this is what you can use to show <laughs> off this new technology. And for whatever reason, Deep Blue Sea was one. It was like wow. the Mask, Deep Blue Sea, okay. Lethal Weapon Four. Okay. Um, yeah, very so, colorful movies. I feel yes, like, you know yes. Um, so anyway, so Deep Blue Sea stars LL Cool J, and of course he, he actually does a rap over the end credits of that movie as well. So I think that was kind of the loose inspiration for for this whole credit sequence. Well, and I actually, I wrote down because I knew that we had to cover this. I actually paused the episode to write down all of the credits, and I just want to go through these, because it is pretty silly. It's very much of the time, but so Zorro is apparently played by John Biner. Are are you familiar with John Biner at all? Um, I can't imagine you would be, but... Okay, so he was, like, an impressionist. He was on, like, the Carol Burnett show. The reason I know him most distinctly was he hosted a Canadian comedy variety show called Bazaar. I think it was on, like, CTV. (laughs) And it was famous because, for our American listeners, Canada has very different restrictions around, like, nudity and swearing. I think it's, like, after 8 o'clock. Like, basically, you can show anything. You don't have to censor it like you do in the the u.s so the show actually had like swearing and nudity but then i remember as a kid on the comedy network because and we've talked about this before how like when nate and i were youths we had all these like cable channels that needed to fill their programming slots because streaming didn't exist yet so like there wasn't like all of this content so they were relying on old content from 30 years ago right so comedy network would re-air these old episodes of bizarre but they had to be (laughs) because they were airing at like 3 p.m in the afternoon they did have to be censored and the only reason I bring this up is that the way they would censor it was, like, if if memory serves, like, it was kind of similar to the censoring of Best Little Whorehouse in Texas at the Grammys, or at the at the Tony Awards. Yeah, like, they would use, like, <laughs> funny sound effects, not just, like, a bleep. So anyway. That's great. So that was bizarre. Then uh, Sean Wayans plays Robot Zorro. And um, Sean was popular at the time, I think, because of Scary Movies. I don't, I can't remember okay. when Scary Movie came out. That might, it might actually come out the next year or whatever. But yeah. Sean and Marlon Wayans made it like White Chicks and Scary right. Movie and like a bunch of these movies. But I think this, I don't know, but this could be a deep cut reference because Marlon was originally cast as Robin in Batman Returns. Okay. And then he was cut at the last minute because they were like, this movie's too big. Like, we've got Penguin, we've got Catwoman, we cannot introduce Robin. Right. And so at the last minute, they removed him from the film, obviously before they went to production. But they still paid him, so it's like, this one of these things of like, he made like, millions of dollars and literally didn't <laughs> have to work a day. So, uh, Mrs. Zorro is apparently played by Rita Rudner. The Scarlet Pimpernel is played... <laughs> The Scarlet Pimpernel is played by Curtis Booger Armstrong, which is a Revenge of the Nerds reference. Did you ever watch New Girl? No, not I did not oh, okay. watch that one. So anyway, well, that actor, Curtis Armstrong, is the principal on New Girl for anybody uh. who watched that show. But he's in Ray, of all things, too. Like, oh. He's one of these like character actors that pops up every once in a while. Uh, King Arthur is apparently played by Cheech Marin, which I thought was funny. <laughs> Man in the Iron Mask is played by Gina Gershon, which, again, like talk about a 90s reference. Wise Nun, Posh Spice, Stupid Nun, Meryl Streep, Time Traveler 1, Stone Cold Steve Austin, (laughs) 
This and this joke is a hundred percent of the time didn't age super well. Gay yeah. seeming prince played by Spalding Gray, mm. uh, man beating mule Eric Roberts, mule beating man just in quotes Gus, <laughs> hiccuping narrator Pele the soccer star. President Van Buren, Robert Evans, the studio head of Paramount during the time of The Godfather. Corky, Anthony Hopkins, which we'll get into. Yeah, exactly. Voice of Magic Taco, James Earl Jones. And the producers would like to thank the Film Board of Canada, which I thought was a funny little, you know, reference to our home country. The Philadelphia Flyers, the maker of Whip Bomb, Mr. Robert Guccione. Do you know who Robert Guccione is? No. Oh, so he's the guy who founded Penthouse. Um, uh, okay. And famously is the producer of Caligula, which is the oh. the sword and sandals porn movie starring yeah, right. starring uh, what's his name from uh, Clockwork Orange, uh, Malcolm uh, McDowell. Yes, and yeah, Malcolm McDowell, Helen Mirren, and I'm pretty sure like Lawrence Olivier is in that movie. Anyway, yeah, it's, Bob like, Gucci- it's not like quite a porn movie, but well, it's no, it like, is. It's well, like there's a lot of sex and nudity in it, but it's kind of. More than a porn movie, it's like a weird yeah. No, it's like it's, it's like a legitimate sword yeah, and sandals yeah. movie that just happens intermittently to happens of, to have yeah, like orgies. penetrative sex. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, we're not covering that on any of these. I don't think. <laughs> I don't think it comes up again. Uh, the Teamsters Pension Fund, AAA Best Bail Bonds, Mister and Mrs. Curtis Booger Armstrong. So anyway. <laughs> Classic freeze frame jokes that, thanks to modern technology, we actually could dig into. But some like bizarre but very Simpson esque esque references in there. Yeah, um, yeah. On the commentary, they were just talking about how much fun this whole parody was to make. I think they call it like a mix 'em up dogs breakfast <laughs> Simpsons parody, where they're totally. just like doing taking all sorts of stuff and putting it together in a really really silly way. It's like not a sort of like tight pointed parody. It's kind of more just like playing with all of these different ideas and different sort of pop culture bits and pieces and, and bringing them together into this movie, which is kind of fun. But Well, it's interesting, though, too, because in the notes you said, like, why are they parroting Mask right. of Zorro, Three Musketeers, Man in the Iron Mask? Yep. At the time, Hollywood summer blockbusters seemed to be going one of two ways. They were taking the success of Batman and being like, okay, let's do 30s Pulp Fiction, or they were going back to these sort of, like, swashbuckling like novels from I don't even know when these would have been written but there was a Three Musketeers movie that had mm-hmm. oddly enough Chris O'Donnell I'm pretty sure was one of the Musketeers Man <laughs> in the Iron Mask with I, if I'm not mistaken it was Leonardo DiCaprio was the Man in the Iron yes, Mask yes that's correct yeah. and then I looked it up in Scarlet Pimpernel I, there wasn't a movie of it but there was like a, a BBC miniseries around this time so right I think like, I think that's kind of the gag is that like all of these characters have been in recent movies, except for the Scarlet Pimpernel, right. which is at that point is a very dated reference. Yes, um, and I love that the Scarlet Pimpernel is basically just Mr. Burns, but like wearing <laughs> super pale makeup. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I I was looking this up a little bit because I was thinking about the same thing. It's like clearly they're driving at this sort of trend of swashbuckler movies, and you know, like looking back. I think I saw a lot of these in theaters. Oh, really? The See, I, I, I this. Well, we'll get into this, but like this was completely off my radar. Oh, really? Okay. I think I saw this in theaters. Pretty sure. And I think I saw the um, Three Musketeers movie. I'm not sure if I saw Man in the Iron Mask or not. But like, I was definitely watching these kinds of movies at this time. So I went back on Box Office Mojo and just started looking at like the rise and fall of all of this. I was very curious, like when did this go out of fashion and then when did it come back into fashion? So 
basically like swashbucklers are like one of the earliest genres of yeah. movies. Like the first United Artist movie is Zorro. Oh, and okay. Yeah, yeah. We're talking like I think it's nineteen nineteen or nineteen twenty. So right. very early on. And and they were very popular, like in the early days of cinema, all the way basically to the nineteen fifties. Um they, oh, wow. they have this like really enduring popularity. And then I feel like in the 60s through the 80s, they were still making them, but they kind of dropped off a bit. I feel like they were doing more ironic things. So, like, obviously, you get, like, The Princess Bride, of course, is the one that I think people from our generation think of. One of the greatest movies of all time. Sure. Fantastic movie. But you also have Zorro the Gay Blade. You also have Robin and Marion with... uh, Sean Connery Sean Connery, yeah. uh, I can't remember who plays Marion, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. But it's kind of like a, you know, sexy, more 70s take on, yeah. on Robin Excalibur, Hood. Excalibur. Yeah. Did you ever see Excalibur, the John Norman no, movie? So. I didn't. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, again, it, it's very sexy. There's nudity in that movie. Yeah. It's, yeah. I'm pretty sure it's rated R. Cause oh, there you go. I, was, I wasn't allowed to watch that one as a kid. We had that on DVD too, though. <laughs> I think that, I don't <laughs> know if that came one came with the DVD player. I don't know if it came with the DVD player, but we definitely owned it on DVD. Right. So. right. so that's kind of the 60s through the 80s vibe. And then, in 1991, there's this movie, which I've never seen, called Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. You've never seen Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? No. No, that one's actually, I mean, okay. I don't want to say that it's good, because I I honestly (laughs) haven't seen it since I was, like, like, early teens. Um, But, I mean, this is a perfect example of what we were talking about earlier. Like, the Brian Adams song. Yeah, um, yeah, sure. uh, Oh, shit, what is it called? Um, Now I gotta look. It's not I would do anything for love. That's meatloaf. Um, <laughs> the, yeah. the the Brian Adams song "Everything I Do I Do It for You," like which it's plays much over the same <laughs> title, man. Yeah, it's right. Okay, so, yeah, but that plays over the end credits, and the music video is famously just, like, shots from the movie. Kevin Costner plays Robin Hood with probably the worst British accent since Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. (laughs) So, anyway, I remember liking it as a kid, but I liked, of course, being me, I liked... Robin Hood Men in Tights, the Mel Brooks parody of that movie, so much more. Right, right. Anyway, this sets the template for this kind of movie moving forward. Yeah, exactly. Up until this point, looking through the 70s and the 80s, there's basically nothing that gets above the top 20 for the year. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves hits number two in 1991. Oh, and so my guess is that that's the one that suddenly that, Hollywood was like, oh, this could be bankable. Yeah, we and then, let's do this again. Right. And so they start trying to reproduce the trend of Robin Hood, okay. Prince of Thieves. And so you get a bunch of them after that. Right. And most of them don't do well. Right. Most right. of them really don't do well. Like all the ones we were just talking about, they don't crack the top 20. No. Um, and like something like Man in the Iron Mask feels very much like a let's take this sort of source material, let's throw heartthrob of the moment Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio in it, yeah. and, like, people are bound to show up, but it's, like, these young girls are probably going and being, like, the well, hey, he's in an iron mask for most of the movie, so, <laughs> I like, think he's got an evil twin brother, maybe, or just a Maybe? Brother? I mean, I, I don't haven't know. seen the movie, but, uh, yeah, like, it seems misguided, to say yeah. the least, yeah. but... But, but Mask I, of Zorro... It cracks the top 20. It's number 16 this year, 1998. Okay, that's... So that's kind of interesting. And I was seeing, like, a lot of articles also researching this movie, sort of being like, why don't they make movies like this anymore? But the thing is, Pirates of the Caribbean happens in 2003. 
Mm. right? It also hits number two. And I think the main thing that's happened is Pirates of the Caribbean just basically owned this genre for the last, like, several decades. The sequel to this movie hits number 64 in 2005. (laughs) So, like, it doesn't really hold up in the same way. Not as good a movie, but also, like, even I wonder if the IP after Pirates of the Caribbean's out, if it just doesn't quite hit the same because it's kind of competing for the same territory. sure. Um, well, but- and also we should just provide a little bit of context as well. Like 1998, the top 10, because, oh, damn, this is a really f- good top 10. Yeah. So uh, starting at number 10, Goodwill Hunting, a little oh, yeah. movie that earned Matt Damon and Ben Affleck Oscars. Uh, number nine, Rush Hour, featuring Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker, a movie that uh, 10-year-old Adam absolutely loved. Sure. Um Number eight, Godzilla, the remake with Matthew Broderick, which I saw in theaters Mm -hmm. for my friend Tyler Van Donk's birthday. It would have been his ninth birthday. We went and saw that. Deep Impact, which I never saw, but that's the volcano movie, I think. Number six, Dr. Doolittle, the remake with Eddie Murphy. Oh, yeah. Uh, Uh Number five, The Waterboy, which I vividly remember renting that with my best friend Tom Cameron, and we quoted that movie a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number four, There's Something About Mary. And then the big three, Saving Private Ryan, Armageddon, Mm -hmm. and the movie that I think up until recently is was like the highest grossing movie of all time Titanic oh, so like well, sure right of yeah course. if you're losing it to Titanic like on this that's the year that this movie is hitting yeah there's 16. a lot of big so, like, movies that year yeah. so 16 is pretty good all things yeah. considered yeah yeah for sure so yeah this is part of the revival of this genre and one of the ones in the 1990s and the 2000s that actually really hits compared to a lot of right. the other sort of imitators of the time So, you know, the other interesting thing about this whole chunk, right, where we're at the movie theater and, and, you know, watching the Zorro movie, watching all of that, is that this is also the beginning of a book about The Simpsons by this academic named Jonathan Gray called Watching The Simpsons, Television, Parody, and Intertextuality. Um, which Sounds is a like book. someone we should have on the show. Yeah, seriously. Well, so I, I remember when we were first talking about this podcast, and I remember reading chunks of this book. And, oh. you know, it's a super academic book. I mean, it has intertextuality in the title. So, you know, I feel like, you know, he's going right for the audience he's going for, you know, so good job. You know, and for me, it's like, look, I went to art school, so my brain is <laughs> kind of like addled and you know, miswired. And so when I'm reading it, I'm like, ooh, this is so interesting. Tell me more about intertextuality and parody and pastiche. Uh, So anyway, it starts by sort of retelling exactly this parody sequence and sort of unpacking all of the stuff that's going on, which I thought was really cool. And most of the book sort of focuses actually on ads, sitcoms and the news rather than Mm. movies. So what we're doing, I feel like is actually kind of complementary to this book. But there was this one line that I thought was very relevant to our podcast that kind of jumped out at me from the introduction Parody has great power and potential to write back to and even write over other texts and genres to contextualize and recontextualize other media offerings and thus to teach and engender a media literacy of sorts, which I thought was really cool. And I feel like, you know, we talk about this a lot on this show of just some of these movies we almost remember primarily through their Simpsons parodies or only ever knew them through their Simpsons parodies. And so like that kind of gives us uh, quite a bit of perspective on how to read another thing, like Paint Your Wagon, for example, (laughs) which like, you know, is mostly a joke to us, right? 
rather than something that we saw first and then right. were reminded about on The Simpsons. That's super interesting, yeah. Mm-hmm. I hadn't seen the episode in a while, but I, as I was rewatching it, I was remembering all these like great moments. Obviously, all the stuff with the tobacco was super funny, and like yeah. Bart, Bart, you know, when Marge says something to the effect of like, "I don't love that Bart's eating whatever," but it's nice to see him eating his vegetables, <laughs> and then it just cuts to him, and he's like got like this this gut, and he's just like <laughs> shoving the tobacco into his mouth. Um, when they pull up to Sneed's seed and feed, formerly right. Chuck's. And the hillbillies, for lack of a better term, are, like, talking about his fancy car. And Homer's like, this car was made in Guatemala. And then they mention his, like, fancy shoes. He's like, I bought these shoes from a hobo. Like, both of those <laughs> lines made me laugh very, very hard. Yeah. Um, One of the ones that stuck out to me this time, just because of our recent musical miniseries, was when Homer's going around slapping everyone with his glove <laughs> and challenging them to a duel. When he goes to Moe's, for some reason, I think Moe's sort of, like, calls him heavy set or something like that and he slaps him with the glove and he's like yeah, i'm just saying you ain't no uh tommy toon there you go tommy toon, tommy yeah. toon. now i see the name everywhere now, yeah now you know who that is now I know yeah and is. then it, it, this also features one of my all-time favorite simpsons gags which i feel like they start doing more and more in these sort of like season 10 to 13 era which is like the bait and switch joke where you think they're going to make a specific kind of joke and then they right. go somewhere else. And so like Homer, when he's asked by the Laramie executives, like they offer him several million dollars for tobacco. And he's like, can I just speak to my family, please? And like they huddle and then he goes, did you see the way that guy's looking at Mindy? Yeah. And so that that made me laugh because it's just again, it's just playing with your sort of like expectations. And that always makes me chuckle. Totally. Yeah, the other fun bit about this episode is in the commentary, they actually bring in a non-Simpsons writer. He's a, a, a like a farmer or botanist, maybe, from Oregon named Rob Bauer. And he actually, after watching this episode, created a tomato-tobacco hybrid himself. <laughs> yeah, I, re- I remember that from the commentary. And then when I was like did some brief research on Wikipedia, I saw that they mentioned that this was like someone actually did this, which... I was like, that can't be real, but evidently it is. Yeah, they they say on the commentary that apparently by doing this, they were able to make a nicotine-free tobacco and and also create nicotine-filled tomato leaves. (laughs) Oh, good. That's just what we need. (laughs) Yeah, apparently he sent the tomatoes to the Simpsons staff and was like, just so you know, they might be deadly. <laughs> and they just set them on a shelf for a while until eventually someone decided to just eat it anyways. And they did not kill them, and they were apparently delicious. Well, there you go. So, so you, go. Uh, Tobacco. you know, this, again, the Simpsons did it first, I guess. So yeah. Yeah, there exactly. you go. Okay, well, let's dig into the movie a little bit. Uh, obviously, we've sort of got a little bit of background. But, Nate, how would you sum this movie up in a sentence? Oh, man, there's a lot going on in this movie. (laughs) There Um, is. Okay. Um, A senior (laughs) and a junior Zorro work together to Uh seek revenge for the wrongs done to them. I love it. That's perfect. Yeah, I mean, this is... No, it's good. It's good. Um, It's funny. This is... Like all the best James Bond movies, and obviously yeah. there's a James Bond connection that we're going to get into, plot of this movie does not <laughs> matter at all. Like, it's really just a means yeah. to an end. There are moments that obviously are, you know, a little bit more emotional than others. But yeah, like, I've now seen this movie a couple times. Gun to my head, I could not tell you the plot of this movie. 
and yet I do not care, and I have so much fun watching it. It's just right. a means to get you from action set piece to action set piece, and it totally works. But also, like Bond, the plot doesn't matter, but it's very plotty. Yeah, <laughs> where it's yeah, like totally. oh, there's a lot of shit going on and double crosses and and yet like you could totally not have any idea what the scheme is and still enjoy the movie. That's that's I think very much a James Bond sort of thing or a, like a Mission Impossible thing for that matter. But yeah, for sure. Well, and to that the credits for the script of this is like super. It's one of those ones where they're like you know, like nine people credited or whatever. And there's lots of rewrites and who knows who did what, but like sort of the main writing partners on this is Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio. Are you familiar with them? No, not really. Well, you're definitely familiar with their work because Mm -hmm. their big films that they did were Aladdin, like Disney's Aladdin. Okay. Shrek, like they're responsible for unleashing Shrek on the universe. Great. And... Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, the first Pirates okay. of the Caribbean movie. Yeah, okay. so so that you yeah you start to see the lineage of how this leads to that wonderful movie based on the <laughs> Disney Dark Ride. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, that makes sense. And speaking of the plot, because we love to do our plot synopses, this was a little bit difficult for me to track down. I found the first VHS that I found had. No plot synopsis. It just had two (laughs) critic blurbs. I'm going to read them to you. Are you ready? Yeah. First one. Great fun. I loved it. (laughs) That's it. That was the first one. And then the second one. This is one crowd pleaser that actually pleases. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's the best they could do. This cover is also fantastic. Uh, very oh, yeah, of no, the it's, era. Yeah, got, it's very, very good. Yeah, you got Anthony Hopkins with his long hair and his goatee. <laughs> you got, like, Antonio Banderas kind of with his, like, mouth open a little bit. And yep. Catherine Zeta-Jones looking sexy. <laughs> yeah, like thrusting her chest forward for some reason. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I should be. it should be mentioned that these two critical quotes come from Good Morning America and Newsweek. <laughs> Yeah, so, interesting. interesting, interesting. Anyway, I did manage to find a different VHS. I don't know if it was like a re-release or whatever, but one of the VHSs did thankfully have a plot description, and this is how they described the film. Cool. When a power-crazed despot schemes to buy California from Mexico, it takes two Zorros, the legendary Don Diego de la Vega, played by Anthony Hopkins, and his chosen successor, Alejandro Marietta, Antonio Banderas, a dashing bandit turned hero, to defeat the tyrant's unscrupulous plans. But can even their combined skills, bravado, and daring do be enough to achieve De La Vega's ultimate goal? Revenge against the man who killed his wife, kidnapped his daughter, and held him prisoner for 20 years. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Very melodramatic. Very melodramatic. Which is, you know, appropriate yeah, for a Zorro no, movie. Nothing wrong with some melodrama. I mean, that's that's what you come to this movie for. So, Adam, what's what is your background with this movie? When did you first see this? Do you think? I know when I first saw this. It okay. was like three summers ago. Wow. So, pa- yeah. like pandemic. Yeah, it was one of my pandemic viewings. I don't. Oh my god. I honestly couldn't tell you what prompted me to watch it. Mm-hmm. It might have been the summer that we gave Anthony Hopkins an award at work, and so okay. I was like going through his work and we did not include this among <laughs> among his collection of too bad <laughs> yeah right um but maybe that was what tipped me off or was I, it an I award for it, his whip work 
Yeah, no, I, yeah, absolutely. No, I, th- I think what it was was it was like, the, for whatever reason, that summer I was sort of catching up on a lot of like 90s blockbusters. Yeah, I, I, I genuinely don't remember what prompted me to finally sit down and watch it, but uh, I did and was like, how did I go this long without seeing this movie? This movie <laughs> yeah. rules. Like it's, it's so good. It's, um, it's like the best in class for what it is, which is like a yeah. 90s blockbuster, big budget with like lots of stars. You know, yeah. it's exactly what you want it to be for that kind of movie. Well, one of my favorite film critics, Mark Kermode, has this mm. saying that he uses for films that maybe aren't like critically acclaimed what he says is it does what it says on the tin right so it's like the kind of movie where you know exactly what you're getting Mm -hmm. it does exactly what you expect it does it extremely well Mm -hmm. and therefore like yeah no it's not gonna win an oscar but if you want a fun swashbuckling popcorn movie like this is the perfect thing to throw on it has aged incredibly well like yeah. it's it, it doesn't feel like a movie from almost 30 years ago now in certain uh, ways i mean i i feel like the production values in particular you're like this movie feels yeah. so big uh so com- big. compared to like contemporary movies of the same budget range relatively speaking it feels enormous right well it's it's from that peak era for hollywood blockbusters in the sense that computer generated effects were good but they weren't so good that you could do everything you could kind of just enhance stuff or use it for compositing or you know yes jurassic park came out and that obviously had like the cgi dinosaur or whatever Mm -hmm. but they were still sort of limited in the scope of what they could do so they still had to rely on miniatures and sort of old school effects Mm -hmm. but they had 40 years of experience and new technology so that they could do those old school techniques the best they had ever been done. Totally. So, I mean, you think of like that list of films we mentioned earlier, like Titanic is a perfect example of this. Like, that is a perfect example of meshing CGI Mm -hmm. and miniatures and on set photography together to form just like mind blowing visuals. So, this is kind of my favorite era for these sort of movies because it was like it hadn't quite tipped over into that like. Well, we're just doing everything in the computer and it looks kind of ropey and silly. And like the perfect comparison is the original Lord of the Rings trilogy versus the Hobbit movies. Totally, like, yes. And how they feel so different. Like yep. this this is more Lord of the Rings than it is the Hobbit. Yep. So yeah, I just was like, I I had so much fun. And I was like, why has nobody told me? Like, well, how am I only just finding out about this movie now? Like I this, know. I it was so, I I loved it then, and I loved it on this rewatch. How about you? Like, did you mentioned that you maybe I, saw this in theaters? I think I might have saw this in theaters. If I didn't see it in theaters, I saw it a long while ago. But then, like you, I didn't watch it for a really long time, and then right. revisited it during the pandemic. It's actually one of my brother in law's like favorite childhood movies. So oh, okay. I think we rewatched it with my wife's family. And I was like, why haven't I watched this movie in so long? This movie's so good. It's so it's, good. It's like the perfect comfort food movie, right? Yeah. It's so damn entertaining. Pretty much every minute of this is entertaining, yeah. right? There's yeah. almost no downtime. Even the more talky scenes, there's always something going on. Yeah, right? no, there's no, like, there's always a little bit of movement and action. People are doing things, right? It's all killer, no filler. There's, like, a lot of movies like this that are sort of plotty, but, like, the plot doesn't matter sort of way. They'll still have scenes where it's like, okay, it's a bunch of people sitting in a room and they have to explain all the stuff, right? So <laughs> yeah. that they can then go do the fun stuff. And this doesn't have that. It's like these little moments in between the action set pieces where 
You have Anthony Hopkins and Antonio Banderas, two incredibly entertaining actors to watch, by the way, who are who have like a short exchange about what has to happen next. And meanwhile, Anthony Hopkins is like whipping him or putting out (laughs) candles with a whip or like challenging him to a duel with a spoon. Like there's always something entertaining going on, even when you're delivering a little bit of exposition. Well, and and just when you think it's about to do what you expect, it kind of defies your expectations. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's just it's so well balanced. It's funny, though, because. Even though I didn't see the film growing up, I distinctly remember the trailer from this. There's a specific scene that we'll talk about that I remember from the trailer. Um, I think you know what scene I'm talking about. (laughs) I can guess. Um, Yeah. Um, I would have been 10 years old, so it definitely lived in 10-year-old Adam's mind. In Canada, there was a channel called the Super Channel. I think it was called Super Channel, which was like a pay-per-view movie channel. Oh, but I didn't have that. On, yeah, well, so you had to pay for that. We didn't have that, but what we had, I think it was Channel 13, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah, the preview channel or whatever. That right? would, yeah, it would just show you the previews. Yeah. for, And I would just, for whatever reason, like I remember this as a kid, I would just put that on. Like, I would just leave that on in the background as, like, background noise okay. and, like, bu- and build my Legos. Okay. Um, and so I think this is, must have been one of the movies that was, like, constantly on pay-per-view and then, like, as a result was constantly on this pay-per-view channel. Also, incidentally, I think the other movie that I know was on there a lot and this, again, 10-year-old, the Demi Moore movie Striptease. So I oh. think that was also why I kept That might have that, been why you kept it on ch- Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Um... So even though I never saw the movie, the trailer lives in my mind. Sure. Like, it, it's just engraved in there. I don't think I've seen the trailer, but I can kind of imagine what it would have been like. It's probably as much of this era as the movie itself. Is, oh, right? how, like, it's it's definitely got a voiceover by that, yeah. the, like, what is his name? The movie voiceover guy. But, like, right. yeah, 100%. It's one of those, like, classic 90s trailers. <laughs> Some say he's a legend. Well, let's let's talk about the the sort of background of this movie and how it right. came to be. Again, like this was kind of I don't know if I would say troubled, but it's one of those productions that like had a lot of people involved over time, right? Like you said, you know, the script went through several different iterations, several different screenwriters. Steven Spielberg, I believe, was the sort of original producer for the film. Could have been the director decided not to, so he could do Saving Private Ryan. Uh, but I I will say like that mm-hmm. feel like if you think of a movie like Hook for example or even Indiana Jones like this does feel like something like it's material that Spielberg like very much in his wheelhouse totally. he kind of Schindler's List era onward like maybe less so but right. this does feel like something that had it been made in like 1991 yeah 100% Spielberg would have directed this movie totally I mean it it is that sort of you know family action movie type thing yeah. right. It's kind of got a lot in common, I feel like, with Raiders of the Lost Ark or... Yeah, you know, totally. It's the same kind of protagonist, same kind of story. So, yeah, totally. You could see why he might have been interested in this. Totally, um, it's very similar to those kind of movies. Yeah. Which is yep. why I think I loved it so much. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. So then, you know, Spielberg, yeah, he goes off and does Saving Private Ryan. Then, I believe it's Mikhail Solomon came on as the director. Then Robert Rodriguez came on as mm. the director. Um, Which makes sense, considering the the Antonio Banderas and everything. Right, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, like, each one of these people kind of left their fingerprints on this movie a little bit. So, like, Salomon wanted Sean Connery for Diego, (laughs) right? Which, again, like, when you think about, like, the Robin and Marion thing, you can kind of, like, see what he's doing. He's, like, taking someone who was 
you know, this kind of star back then, and then kind of giving him the, the elder statesman role now. You know. But also feels like, you know, I said this movie doesn't feel super dated, but I would say the casting yeah. of this movie feels super dated. Like the idea yes. of hiring Anthony Hopkins, a Welshman, to play oh, a Spaniard, yeah. who thankfully, to his credit, does not attempt to do a Spanish accent. He's just like, no, no, yes, no, Zorro is now best. Welsh. Like, yes. But yes. I, could you imagine Sean, like 1998 Sean Connery in that role? I don't. I mean, just, I don't think he could have done the action because Anthony Hopkins does some stuff in this movie, right? Like he actually. Yeah, well, yeah, not, not, not a does, lot. But when does, does Connery retire? Like The Rock is like 95, 96. Mm-hmm. So okay, so but like he's pretty old in The Rock. We're getting very close to You're the Man Now, Dog era, Sean Connery. <laughs> I don't know that he could have pulled it off. Yeah, no, I don't. I really don't think so. And sort of the trade-off for Salomon was he was like. Well, you know, Sean Connery will be Diego, but everyone else will be Latino. Okay. So that, so that didn't happen. It, yeah, no, nope, um, that certainly did not happen. No. Uh, so Rodriguez, he wanted a more expensive, believe it or not, R-rated wow. version of this movie, which, you know, makes sense given, like, you hire Robert Rodriguez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what he's going to do. But, yeah, his major contribution was really Antonio Banderas, who, of course, was right. working with him before this on the Desperado trilogy, which is great, sort of low-budget action movie series. Lots of fun. What about yeah, a very different movie? Where does this fall? Like, okay, Desperado was 95, and obviously El Mariachi was 92. So Yeah, this okay, would have been so kind yeah, of a step-up is... like movie, like blockbuster, based yeah. on his cred with uh, the Desperado trilogy. He also wanted Salma Hayek for Elena, which would well, have been... You know, Interesting. I think it could have worked. Yeah, I could definitely could have worked. I obviously she's of Latin descent, yes. unlike another Welsh person that happens to be in this movie. But <laughs> well, we'll you know, you it. hire a Brit to direct, right? Um, yeah. And he brings in British people. So on that note, Martin Campbell is the one who ends up directing this, right? So Martin Campbell, I mean, I like to me, he is best known for directing two of the best Bond films. Sure. Period. And so in 95, he does Goldeneye. Yep. And then, which is, you know, rebooting the Bond series with Pierce Brosnan and rebo- rebooting it for the 90s. Yep. And then they famously bring him back to reboot the Bond franchise with Daniel Craig in 2006 with Casino Royale, which yeah. I, That's amazing. for my money, is the best Bond film, yes. full stop. And But also just amazing to reboot the same series twice. And yeah, do it's it incredible. so successfully it, both times. like And to do like to one-up himself. Like, yeah. GoldenEye is yes. an incredible achievement. And then he's like, hold my beer. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to make it even better. Like, yeah. it's just astounding. However, <laughs> before we damn him with too much praise, he also directed the disastrous Green Lantern movie with Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. And which is like philosophically the exact opposite of this movie. Right. Mm-hmm. It's yes. Which is interesting. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'd be curious one day to learn the full story behind that and how that has, happens. And of course, as we've alluded to, he also directed the sequel, which is much less revered The Legend of Zorro, which I never actually got around to watching because I read that it's trash. I've seen it. It's not not probably as bad as you think it's going to be, but it's not as good as this, right? But it's it's solid, and, like, the nice thing is that, like, Catherine Zeta-Jones gets more to do and is, like, more of a part of the action, which is really fun. Uh, That's the kind of upside of it, but it's, yeah, it's not quite as good as this one. He definitely seems to be a director who's 
I don't want to say only as good as his material because mm. like I I do think he's a very talented director obviously like again I he's directed two phenomenal movies well three movies that I would I highly revere I again Casino Royale for my money is the greatest Bond film in the series I think it's a masterpiece yeah. full stop regardless of it being a James Bond movie but yeah like obviously if he ha- doesn't have the best material to work from you know you can only polish a turd so much as they say <laughs> but I knowing that like again the fact that he does Goldeneye and then a few years later follows it up with this it's like I, I'm surprised that he hasn't worked more. Like, he's, right? He's not a name that necessarily no. I feel like gets put in the same realm as lots of other big blockbuster directors. Um, no, absolutely. So it's yeah, it is kind of curious. I kind of wonder with Green Lantern if it's just sort of like, look, the movie landscape is changing. One of the great things about Casino Royale is that it does have the same philosophy as this movie, right? Yes, it is highly practical. And there's a lot of Mm -hmm. amazing stunt work and, you know, parkour, because, you know, that was the thing. (laughs) You can actually see the action that's going on, the stunts that are happening. That's the thing that this movie does so well and what he was able to continue there. But, you know, there aren't that many opportunities for that these days, right? I feel like it's now reserved for sort of tested intellectual property, right? Yeah. Like James Bond, like Mission Impossible, uh, Mission Impossible right? Yeah, Pirates of the Caribbean even started to slip away from the sort of practical stuff as it went on. Yeah, um, Marvel's not going to hire Martin Campbell for for <laughs> no. any of their movies. Like, no. it's just that's not the these... way they make movies. No, not at all. So you know, like maybe that's why he went for Green Lantern is being like, I, all right, I'm going to try to keep up with the times and do movies the way movies are done in this era. And you know, he's. Fantastic at this way of doing it, but maybe not so much at that. So I'm still holding out hope that the Broccolis will come to their senses and when they reboot James Bond, which they're inevitably going to do now, yeah. and bring him back a third time to sort of Hat-trick. usher in the next... I, I, I think they sort of have this trend of, like, in recent years of hiring these sort of, like, prestige directors, and I don't want my James Bond movies directed by name directors. I want them directed by action directors who yeah. know how to direct action movies totally. and he clearly is that kind of guy so totally so yeah i mean campbell was hired off of Goldeneye, basically okay well that um, makes a lot of sense yes because they were like look he was able to reinvent this intellectual property so maybe he can reinvent zorro because like by this point zorro is probably best known for that like 1950s disney tv series like, oh. there haven't been that many, like, big, serious Zorro movies since right. then. They're, like I said, there's Zorro the Gay Blade, but it's kind of a comedy. This is kind of a reboot, which falls very much in line with what was happening in the 90s. Like, TV to movie adaptations from the 50s and 60s, you know? Yeah, well, and we talked about how, I can't remember what episode we discussed this, but I know we've discussed this before. These movie executives... They're of a generation where they grew up watching all of these great TV shows. They Mm -hmm. become older. They get executive positions. And they're like, well, my comfort food is 60s TV shows. So let's make those into movies. So that's how you get things like Mission Impossible, Mm -hmm. Adam's Family, Avengers, Fugitive. Like Beverly Hill. Did you you remember Beverly Hillbillies? Yeah, was a movie. The Brady Bunch movie. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And some of them were actually really good reboots. Like, yeah, Adam's Family Values. Great movie. Mission Impossible, yep. great movie. Great movie. Uh, Lost in Space, Wild Wild West. 
Not so Untouchables, great. very Untouchables good. Untouchables, great, yes, yeah. Twilight Zone, the movie even, right? Um, yeah, yeah, All yeah, these yeah. sort of attempts to kind of revive all of that. And then the other stream you have is, like, what you were saying earlier, you have, like, The Phantom and Batman and, like, yeah. all the... And, and even, like, going back a little further, you have Star Wars and you have Raiders of the Lost Ark sort of reviving, like, the serial. Flash and, like, Gordon, yeah. like Flash sort of, Gordon. Yeah. Oh, it's, like, really yeah, early film stuff from even earlier. And that's also kind of in fashion right now. So I feel like yeah, cause this is me, both of those I, coming together. Yeah. When I think of Zora, I think of like serials. And yeah. obviously the, that lineage led into, you know, Batman is very famously like, like two of the main inspirations for Batman was Zorro and the shadow. And then in right. fact, I think in a lot, like some of the Batman canon as it, as it were like, Bruce Wayne was at a Zorro movie, and that's right. where his parents were killed. Right. So there's sort of this like lineage. Zorro and Batman are very much intertwined. Yeah, totally. I mean, he's got a Batcave, he's got a butler, he has to be rich and then a masked hero at night. Like, I mean, yeah, it's, exactly. It's very, very similar. In some ways, this movie and its approach to kind of rebooting things feels very right now, too, mm-hmm. right? It's what's going on with a lot of intellectual property. I'm thinking about like Scream, right? or Creed, or Star Wars, or Fury Road, where it's like you're introducing a new hero, and then you have the old hero do the sort of baton pass, right? Or the The, passing of the torch. This and Mission Impossible feel like the sort of two movies in the 90s that are kind of doing this trick. Because Mission Impossible has like the hero from the TV series is the bad guy. (laughs) Right. Yeah, which famously people were not very happy about, but I well, pe- I love people it, who like, actually watched the show, but like yes. most people who watched the movie were like, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Well, but, but it's funny too, like the Bond connection too, because while well, Bond and Batman, like that opening shot of you know a silhouetted Zorro walking out, turning to the camera, totally. and then cutting a Z, like yes, it very, it, it very much reminds me of. Obviously, the gun barrel sequence from Bond, but then also to, I think it's the Joel Schumacher Batman movies. I'm pretty sure Batman Forever ends with Batman and Robin running towards the screen in silhouette against, like, yeah, yeah. like their backlit. And then mm-hmm. I think Batman and Robin does the same thing, only they add Batgirl or whatever. So, like, th- again, the lineage of these sort of, like, okay, let's sort of play with the iconography of these very successful franchises. Like, they're kind of doing that, and in an attempt to set this up as, like, this will be the next big franchise, and obviously that gamble didn't necessarily pay off. But Yeah, um, yeah. interestingly. It feels like it totally could have. It just kind of didn't... I don't know. Maybe yeah, it just absolutely. wasn't ever quite successful enough. But anyway, who else do we have here on the call sheet? <laughs> yeah, well, so it's interesting. The cinematography is by Phil Mayhew, mm-hmm. who is not a name that... I was immediately familiar with, but when I looked up his screen credits, he's one of Campbell's frequent collaborators. He shot GoldenEye. He went on to shoot Casino Royale and a bunch of other stuff. He also shot the Catherine Zeta-Jones movie Entrapment, which oh. is the movie that she did with Sean Connery. Do you remember Entrapment? This is another trailer I, I actually never remember. <laughs> I've actually never seen Entrapment. But if you've seen the trailer, right? You know the thing I'm talking about. I don't know. Do, Probably. Okay, so there's... okay. I, I, I feel like this is making me sound inc- like 10-year-old Adam was incredibly horny. But So Sean Connery's an old thief. He meets Catherine Zeta-Jones, 
and he hires her to like bank heist or something or other and there's like a bunch of lasers and she famously like glides her body down un- like because she's so nimble and she can like glide <laughs> under the lasers but in because it's the 90s there's like this shot and her butt is like perfectly fr- it's like oh, right, I- it's course. iconic it is an iconic image from this era so anyway i remember that trailer vividly and i remember i did rent the movie and i think the movie was like in my mind it was pretty okay but like i'm sure it's terrible right but, right um but kind of a similar vibe to this like sean connery's like the old guard teaching the new mm-hmm. anyway it's edited by tom noble who was also the editor of thelma and louise oh, which we've, okay. we talked about first blood mm-hmm. the rambo movie the Monty Python anthology movie, and now for something completely different. Okay. And one of our favorites, like a deep cut that we tell everybody should check out, Exorcist 3 Legion. Oh, like yes. The, the good Exorcist sequel. Yeah, totally. It's not totally. really an Exorcist sequel, but like that's a whole other thing, but love that movie. Yeah. That's a classic for us. And I also, <laughs> I didn't look up who the sound designer was, but this movie's sound design is so good. Oh, and it's yeah. also, like, so 90s. In multiple points, they sort of, like, mix in a, I don't know if you noticed it, it's like a cheetah or a panther It's a puma. Roar. A puma, okay, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just reminds, did you ever play that video game Pitfall? Oh, yeah, totally. Game? Yeah, and Pitfall opened with, like, that same, like, I think it's literally, like, the same, the stock, same stock sound effect. Sound, yeah. <laughs> But so every time I heard it, I was like, hey, Pitfall. But yeah, also, yeah. like, it's just like a classic thing of they were doing in the 90s of like, okay, this fire thing, we're also going to mix in like a lion roar right. to just really emphasize the power. Yeah, yeah. I feel like power. It's over the slash at the beginning when he's slashing the Z, yes. you hear it. And then it's also like the explosion in the finale. They like have yeah, all these bun- big cat noises over top of the explosion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it's got this amazing score oh. from James Horner. <laughs> It's just score. Which I looked back at my old Letterboxd review from when I first watched it, and that was like one of the things that I wrote was like, the score is phenomenal. It's like super 90s, but like so good. Oh, totally. Well, so let's let's talk about the movie and talk about I mean, like for me, the place where we have to start is just like the look and feel and sound of this movie because it's just absolutely so lush and amazing. And so just to continue on the score for a second. Like, honest to God, I feel like this theme is, like, up there with, like, Lawrence of Arabia. You know what I mean? Like, it yeah. is so iconic to this movie. And and there's also all sorts of creative sort of stuff happening throughout the score as well. Like, one of the things that they talk about in the behind-the-scenes featurette is that all of the sword fights, James Horner had to convince Campbell that you shouldn't use orchestral score for that oh and actually convinced him to allow him to use flamenco dancing as the score so that's why all of the sword fights feel like a dance which uh. which is also how like the stunt people talk about it is that it's very much like a dance it's so smart and gives those scenes such a unique feel compared to other movies of this kind and it's part of the fun of the movie too it's light it's not all serious all the time it goes well with, like, Zoro smiling while he's fighting, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's part of what I love about this movie. And we've, pri- you know, we obviously we haven't really discussed this on the podcast, but you and I have discussed in our day-to-day conversations of, like, Hollywood learning all the wrong lessons from The Dark Knight. Right. I, although I think it's really more the wrong lessons from The Dark Knight Rises, mm. because I think The Dark Knight is actually a lot funnier than people remember. That's probably but true, this yeah. I, This idea of, like... 
okay, we need to be taken seriously, so we need to make our movies self-serious. You know, the Matt Reeves, the Batman movie, which I like, but I, mm-hmm. you know, it's like essentially a David Fincher movie with Batman, which like literally is ticking every single box out yeah. there. But like, there's a self-seriousness and a lack of humor to it that really I don't like. Yeah. And this movie isn't afraid to be literally laugh out loud funny. Again, I'm this is a rewatch and I was like chuckling at multiple points. Like yeah. there are still emotional beats, but they understand that like that doesn't mean that you can't have some fun. Like these movies are supposed to be fun. And this does a brilliant job of balancing the sort of emotional beats with those sort of more humorous beats with those more action-oriented beats. Totally. And I feel like that mixture is also classic to Zorro. They're really kind of keeping that spirit alive, but then really elaborating on it with all of these different details. The other thing that you talked about was the sound design. And it's like, there is so much Foley in this movie. It's absolutely insane. All of the sword fights, the swords don't sound like that at all. They're made of aluminum. So they just sound like clink, clonk, clink. Yeah, you know? they would sound terrible. So it's like every single sword hit you hear is Foley. And they recognize that every sword has to sound different from one another. So it's like all of the sword fights sound different from one another. Every time you hear horses, like running or you hear you know neighing or anything like that that's all added in and there's a lot of all of that in this movie so pretty amazing and this is the one thing that it was uh nominated for at the academy awards was sound and sound editing i believe was what what it was nominated for didn't even win though actually um oh do you know what did uh yeah saving private ryan (laughs) <laughs> oh spielberg competing with himself fair fair enough yeah. yes I which mean, that, fair that, enough. yes yeah that movie's sound is astonishing actually i have a weird family connection to one of the sound editors oh. or sound designers on that film but mm-hmm. yeah Ooh, fancy. Um, okay so if you're gonna lose to something that's the one to lose to i guess yeah for sure for sure you also have the production design right oh which it's like, so good again it's like if you're gonna do this practically that all has to be immaculate, and it absolutely is in this. Again, every scene, there's a beautiful set, amazing costumes, right, on top of all the stuff that's actually going on on screen. And apparently this was actually all shot on location in Mexico and in Mexican oh. studios. Didn't know that about this movie. That's surprising, yeah. Also a little weird because it actually takes place in California. <laughs> right, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. So, like, you know, the architecture's right, but, like, it takes place in, like, northern California, I believe, like, it, right. in Monterey. So it doesn't quite look like California, but anyway, it doesn't matter. It looks beautiful. One of my favorite pieces of production design is early in the film when Diego comes home and he enters through the fireplace. It does the classic, like, rotating fireplace thing. Right. But the detail that I love is that the... I guess it's the hearth, I think is what you would call it, where the actual fire is. Mm -hmm. It slides out of the way so that he can walk, and then it slides back into place. And I'm just like, that's such a nice little detail. And it's so cool. And it's like very Batman. Very Batman, yes. Like, yeah, I just, again, the eye for detail in this movie is so, so good. Yeah, there were like 2,000 costumes created for this um because of the sort of era and style they they couldn't really actually rent a lot of those they had to make most of them and then apparently like with the the costumes for the two zoros they actually made a conscious decision to make them slightly different so anthony hopkins zoro costume is slightly more spanish inspired and antonio banderas is more mexican inspired 
So it's just like that's cool. little details on the hat and yeah, the yeah, clothing yeah. and all of that. Thought that was very, very cool. The other crazy production design fact about this is that all the haciendas you see in this, the big mansions basically, were yeah. <laughs> real ruins in Mexico that this production restored to their original splendor in exchange for being able to shoot in them. Wow. <laughs> That's <fucking> cool. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Again, 90s Hollywood, man. Like, they just had money to burn. Yeah. So I mean, the like, budget yeah, for this sure, was like not? $95 million. So it's yeah, like... which is wild. Yeah, we'll just restore a couple haciendas. Why not? You know? Wow. So, but it shows. Like, it, it really yeah, no, looks... It, like, it, Amazing. Amazing. We t- we, we've we talked about this before of, like, putting that money on the screen. I think that's why it's sort of aged so well. It's just, like, it gives it that sort of timelessness and scope and scale that just, you know, makes it not feel like a movie from 1998. Yeah, totally. My impression of the cinematography and editing in this is that, again, it reminds me actually of some of the musicals we were watching as part of our previous series in that it's very simple, right? It is just, like, shots that show the action clearly, not a ton of, like, fast editing, like, letting things sit so that you can really see that the actors, the stunt people, the the effects are really doing their job. And, like, this is all actually happening. It's not a trick of the camera. They're actually doing a lot of this stuff. Well, to bring it back to, like, Bond, GoldenEye is a perfect example of this. And even Casino Royale, because... And what the sort of comparison that everybody makes is, like... After Casino Royale is when the Bourne movies start to really right. take off. And that's when you start to get the, like, hyper-edited, super frenetic, mm-hmm. barely able to keep up style of editing becomes super popular in sort of, like, action movies. To the point where, like, Quantum of Solace, the movie that comes after Casino Royale, feels very, like, it's edited very much like a Bourne movie. And mm-hmm. a lot of people complained about not liking that style. But, like, when you compare this to sort of GoldenEye, like, GoldenEye is very similar. Like, it's very simple in the way it does its action sequence. It's not the classic, like, we'll show an explosion and we'll show, like, 17 different angles of it. It's just, like... But it's interesting how well-paced it is despite that fact. Yeah. I think a lot of that is because the script is so tight, right? And that really keeps it all moving. I was seeing, again, in the special features, Campbell really takes a lot of care in storyboarding everything in advance. Mm. Um, Less so with the dialogue scenes, but with the action scenes, he's like, he writes all of the action in the script and then sits with the storyboard artist, like, frame by frame, laying out each of the shots and all of that sort of stuff. So very, very, very detailed approach to this. And it, it pays off. Like, everything feels just so clean in the way that it's shot. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about casting because I think that's where maybe the 90s <laughs> element starts to yeah. seep into this movie. I mean, I, I with that being said, like, I think the casting is great. I think all of these actors do an excellent job. Sure. Uh, I don't necessarily think that they're ethnically appropriate in every instance. Yeah. But no, um, most instances. <laughs> most instances. But I can't say that I dislike any of the performances that we get. That is the tough thing is like they're all really, really <laughs> good in this. I mean, I my first one of my first notes is old Zorro is Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. And I do remember when I watched this for the first I I must not have been. I wasn't watching this because of the Anthony Hopkins retrospective that I had previously edited because I genuinely think when I saw it, I was like, what the f*** 
<laughs> like why is Zor- like why is Anthony Hopkins yeah. Zoro? Like yeah. this makes no sense. Like he's no. not anywhere close to being the appropriate person to play this yeah. role. I, th- I think but, like one person that I heard floated, uh, you know, this might have just been an IMDb thing, so who knows? But uh, was Raul Julia? But he died okay, yeah, yeah. before. Yeah, before of this course. Shot. Yeah, he. Yeah, I think his last movie, if I'm not mistaken, is the Street Fighter movie. Yeah. Right, right. Which is unfortunate for him, but he would have been great. Yeah. Like, he's so good in those Adams Family movies. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, like, there are other people that probably could have played this role. They mostly, I think, just wanted, like, an elder statesman type. Right. You know? And obviously, like, in 98, you know, Hopkins solidified his place in cinema history from playing Hannibal Lecter. Like, he's. Right. But again, like, even that, like, this is such a different type of role like Lecter is a villain and I feel like Hawkins kind of rode that for a little while like this mm-hmm. is I mean I guess he did meet Joe Black at is it I think that's Joe after Black? this yeah so like if I'm casting this at no point do I go oh you know who we should get that incredibly talented Welsh actor Anthony Hopkins should play <laughs> our like it's a choice yeah but I can't deny that he's really good. He, I mean, he really, I really think he nails this. And he also appears to have really done some work to be able to do some of the action. He's, I mean, this is my understanding of his, like, the workmanship that Hopkins, like, he is apparently very, 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 very dedicated to his roles. Mm. Like, he memorizes all of his stuff. He's always off book, which, like, on film, that's, like, not really normally a thing. Like, right. you learn your sides for the scenes you're going to shoot that day. Like, he wants to know everything backwards and forwards. He's, like, classically theater trained sure. or whatever. But everything that I've sort of read about him in the past indicates that when he, like, gets a role, he is very dedicated to that role and wants to, like... If he has to learn how to use a whip and sword fight and all right. this stuff, like, he learns how to do that. Yeah, yeah. And, well, this is the thing. is like, he initially turned down the role because he had back pain of you know he had just mm. done this movie the edge in 1997 okay yeah, yeah which is like yeah, a yeah, wilderness yeah. survival movie type yeah thing with alec baldwin maybe but that but, sounds right but yeah so he had injured his back and was like i can't really do this especially with all the action and stuff and then he got an operation and decided to take the role and like exactly what you're saying as he's sort of getting into the role he starts learning how to use a whip from his stunt double who is using the whip and actually right. does some of the stuff on set so that's like it, he's very dedicated you know is his voice quite right probably not would it be great if this actually went to a latino actor yes <laughs> yeah i'm not gonna yeah. deny that but what i will say is like power to him that he doesn't attempt to do a spanish oh. accent yeah, like thank god i that like, would have been I'm embarrassing. So, yeah, like, I'm so glad he's just like, nah, Zorro's Welsh now. Yeah. Like, I appreciate that he just sort of was like, I'm going to just do my own voice yeah. and it'll be fine. Yeah, for sure. The one thing that we also didn't really touch on was, like, I forgot how much Anthony Hopkins was in this movie. Like, oh, I, really? in my memory, I was like, oh, yeah, like, he's the old Zorro and then he passes the torch and then he's not in it for the rest. Like, I forgot that he, like, there's two Zorros the whole movie, totally. essentially. Like, it's not, like, the traditional sort of, like mentor mentee and then you know the final act is the mentee sort of taking up the mantle and because the mentor has either been killed or is you know indisposed or whatever like they're both right through to the end essentially yeah they both get their big Um, final battle and everything yeah well let's talk about the uh younger zorro antonio Mm. banderas who wow i mean he's so good dude like he's so good he just hits everything 
Like he's yeah. he's funny. You buy yeah. his emotions. He's charming, right? And also, like he, this is again a physically demanding role, and he is doing it. So Bob Anderson, not the Simpsons director, Bob Anderson, <laughs> the, a famous sword trainer. Yeah, very famous. He worked on this movie, and he said that Antonio Banderas was like one of the most natural swordsmen that he's ever met. Described him as like a modern Douglas Fairbanks, who's the actor who of originated course. Zorro. Yes. Yeah, um, and famous for all of his swashbuckling. Like, he did those Robin Hood movies as well. Right, right. And, uh, you know, when I was watching the behind the scenes, there's all sorts of stuff of them in the swordplay scenes, sort of practicing and all that kind of stuff. And there's this one shot <laughs> of Antonio Banderas. It's in the scene where they're in the courtyard, and he's fighting off, like, a dozen yep. different guys on top of a table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's just... Great sequence. Yeah, yeah. And he's just between takes, and he's got one of his feet sort of outstretched slightly and he's balancing the tip of the sword on his foot while it's gently spinning and wow and, and kind of smiling at the camera and i'm like that is so bonkers <laughs> um but like in the other takes he is fencing he is the guy who's like jumping up and grabbing onto the the branches and swinging and kicking people like that's right. antonio banderas he did a lot of the the stunts wow. himself apparently so like Wow, I mean, just like what a find for this role. I really can't imagine someone better in this role. <laughs> yeah, he's incredible. And it's funny, prior to watching this movie in the summer, like I, I knew of Antonio Banderas. Yeah. He was in Spy Kids, right. which I saw I in never the theaters that. when that came out. Never liked it. He was in the film adaptation of Evita. Okay. Like the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. He's actually pretty good in it. Sure. But funnily enough, because everything always comes back to Phantom for me, he was at a time rumored or like gunning and I think was actually cast to play Phantom in the Phantom movie. Oh, And there was a like a concert thing that was done for Andrew Lloyd Webber at one point where they brought him out to sing the title song for Phantom of the Opera with Sarah Brightman. And as a kid watching it, I was just like, oh, no, like, this is terrible. This guy cannot play this role. And then, obviously, it went to Gerard Butler. And now, looking back on it, I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, Antonio Banderas would have been way better yeah. than what we ended up getting. But, yeah, like, I, I hadn't really seen him in much. Mm -hmm. So seeing him in this, I was just like, this guy is a fucking star. Like, why was he not in everything? Like, he's so good. I think the problem is that this is his, like, big blockbuster breakout. And then he yes. basically rides this persona for a lot of his career. Right. Like Spy Kids, guess yeah. who he is in that movie, basically? Yeah, He's basically this. He's basically Zorro. Yeah. He's, you know, suave and funny, charming, you know, like, it's that. It, and so, like, I think he kind of got pigeonholed after this. Case in point, uh, Puss in Boots. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> right? fair enough. He ends up playing yeah. Puss in Boots, which is basically a parody of this role also. Yes. Um, the other thing I will say is after he finally shaves his first sort of like cleaned up look mm -hmm. all i could think about and we referenced it already is inigo montoya from princess bride like <laughs> totally. he literally looks like mandy patinkin in that movie yeah and then i'm just like okay well like now we need an inigo montoya spinoff and it should be played by antonio banderas and it would be <laughs> i would watch the hell out of that yeah sounds He's... good I'm, I'm here for it all right so Catherine zeta jones also yeah. welsh <laughs> also welsh like I said, although she you, you does know, do an accent, she does. And what what and do you not, think? Not, not terrible. I mean, again, I'm with you in that. Like, hundred percent, they should have cast a Latinx actor. But it's this is so funny. I think because of this movie, and I, I there's another podcast I was listening to recently. I might have been Blank Check or something, but they discussed this. 
I so I know I'm not alone in this. I thought she was me Latinx. Too. Me too. Probably because yes, of this movie. And th- the name Catherine Zeta Jones sounds like didn't oh, say maybe, anything like, to me about like where she was from in particular. But no, she's super white, super, super Welsh, Welsh <laughs> su- like nothing, no Latin blood in her at all. But yep. she's not. Yeah, bad. Like I think she. I. I mean, look, she's gorgeous, mm-hmm. and that's sort of what the role demands. Mm-hmm. But do you know much about her sort of like background? No, not really. So well, okay. So anyway, she, she was actually not the original person for the role. Originally, mm-hmm. I guess they cast Isabella Skorupko, who had played Natalia in Goldeneye. Oh, okay. So not so, so like the Bond girl, essentially, yeah. not the villain, but the right. the heroine, I guess. And then, for whatever reason, she was eventually replaced by Catherine Zeta-Jones. So her background is actually in musical theater. When she was nine, she was in the West End production of Annie. Okay. She was in Bugsy Malone, which is sort of, like, famous for being, like, a musical about Bugsy Malone, but it's all with kids. (laughs) And then she was in the, I think it was the original, but maybe she was a replacement cast of 42nd Street, which we talked about when we did On the Town. Right. And then famously, I mean, like, she then was in the film adaptation of Chicago, which she's phenomenal for. And... Was so nominated for, but I can't remember if she won the Did she win the Oscar for that? I can't remember. Ooh, I'm not sure, but... She, she definitely was nominated, but, yes. I, like, she's one of the best things in that movie. And then again, like, I vividly remember the trailer for this because the scene where they cut the, the straps of her dress, that was the shot that was, like, in the trailer. Of and, course. Like, that's, that is engraved in... Engraved with a Z in your brain. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of it sound like I was so horny as a 10-year-old. Um, and then Entrapment, which we also talked about. But no, like, to your point, and you, you mentioned, like, I guess in the sequel, she gets a little bit more to do. That's sort of the downside, is I think she is a really talented actor, mm-hmm. and I don't think she gets enough to do in this. Although, considering the era, like, this is not unsurprising. You know, she's essentially playing the Bond girl of this Zorro movie, and she's just kind of there to look beautiful which she does like that first shot where she's like revealed like is maybe one of the most beautiful anyone has ever looked on film yeah but it's yeah it's a bummer that she doesn't really get as much to do in this it's funny this movie kind of pairs nicely and i'm gonna reference it at the end did you ever see the mummy movies like the brendan fraser yeah yeah totally so Rachel Weiss is the sort of plays the equivalent role in those movies, mm. but she has a lot more to do. Like I feel like she's a much stronger female character in those yeah. movies. Yeah. So it's just interesting when you compare the two that like this character really is just there as like a prop essentially. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think it's sort of in this in between space for me where it's like she's not a damsel in distress, but she also doesn't have a lot of defining character attributes. Like, she doesn't feel like a totally complete person. She feels like an idealized woman. And honestly, like, there are still so many movies that come out these days that are like that, where it's just like, you know, the female character is the cool badass that is, you know, better than the the male lead at everything, except when it matters to the story, in which case the male lead is better at those things. Yeah, exactly. And, And it's like, it's kind of that vibe, right? Of it's like, she's incredibly beautiful. She's incredible with swords. She's, you know, smart. She's principled, all these things. But of course, like in the conclusion, she like kind of frees some people from yeah. a cage. And you and know. ultimately she's a plot motivation. Like the revenge plot is because she was kidnapped. True. Yes. At, as a, as a child. And so like that's motivating Anthony yes. Hopkins character. And so like, she's very important to the story but it's not 
her actions that are important to the story. Right, right, 100%. So yeah, but I think she's delivering a really good performance and kind of makes the character more than the sum of its parts through sheer yeah. will. <laughs> you know? Totally, absolutely. And then we got the villains. We got Stuart Wilson and we got Matt Letcher as Raphael Montero and Captain Love, respectively. Uh, <laughs> Captain Love. Captain Love. Both of them are mostly TV guys, it seems like. Mm. Wilson is more from like the British sort of TV space, it seems like. Right. I think he was actually in that Sherlock Holmes series that you like with our friend. Oh, from... the, like the, right. Uh, Jeremy Brett, the Granada TV series. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. From uh, My Fair Lady. So I think he was in that and lots of other things like that, sort of like period British right. things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one thing that I thought was hilarious is he also plays the villain in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 from <laughs> okay. 1993. Cool. And uh, I, I, I looked up a clip of it to just see what it was like. Completely unrecognizable. You would have okay. no idea it's the same actor at all. Like, looks right. different, sounds completely different. <laughs> Fair enough. But he yeah. plays Walker in that movie. So that's kind of random. And then Letcher, the thing I know him most from is he plays a villain in the CW Flash series named Eobard Thawne. Okay, I did not know that you were a fan, but okay. Good. I, you know, oh, fan is a strong word. <laughs> I have watched it. <laughs> I have not. Yeah. Um, yeah, he looks like... Um, what is the name of the guy? He's the bad guy in the Wolverine movie, like the good Wolverine movie. Oh, um, the Wolverine? Logan? No, no, no. The Logan, yeah. Boyd Holbrook. There's sort of like this period of like, we're going to get a handsome blonde guy to play the villain. He's fine. Like, he's yeah. kind of forgettable. Like, I didn't remember him as being the villain. I did, right. I like... Stuart Wilson's character, like uh, Montero, I definitely remember. Yeah, I like I but like him he, a lot. He just kind of feels like to come again, take it back to Bond. It's like there's the Bond villain and the henchman. Totally. He sort of feels like the henchman character. Totally. I think the big thing that you're supposed to take away from him is he's the American. Right. Right. He's always dressed in his American uniform. Yes. He's blonde. But yeah, other than that, he's just kind of a tough guy who apparently though he is based on a real guy, I believe. Oh, and okay. you know the whole thing where he has Marietta's head in a jar. Yeah. Apparently, this guy actually did that. That's a well, real. That's terrifying. That's a real so, thing. So yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, Captain Love. Um, well, it's interesting. I because I watched the film on Netflix mm-hmm. and they have a 4K print of it. And the one thing that I just found super distracting was like you could clearly tell that his face was covered in bronzer oh, no. because like at, at his like hairline, it's kind of like that Trump thing of like yeah, yeah. you can see the like a natural skin color. And in fact, there's another scene with Antonio Banderas that also looks kind of similar. Like his face is very bronzed and tanned but his neck isn't and like because of the 4k (laughs) print you can kind of see but yeah anyway there's a couple other cameos in this so the uh the prison guard did you recognize him no i don't think so so the one who gets water thrown on him overweight prison guard. Yeah. yeah yeah the prison warden yeah so his name he's an actor named maury chaikin he's a canadian actor okay who was in on a and e there was a series called the nero wolf mysteries oh yeah okay did you ever watch that yeah yeah. So anyway, that's he plays Nero Wolf, and that, so immediately I was like, oh, because I, I loved those those okay. shows as a kid, okay. and I was like, oh, what the hell? Like Maury Chaykin. I like because again, that's, that's what I know him from, and I don't remember seeing him really in anything else. He crops up in a bunch of like Canadian movies from like the eighties or whatever. Sure. But it's just weird to see him, and I was like, that's when I was like, oh, is this like a weird Canadian co-production? But apparently not. It was shot entirely in Mexico. Yeah, so. Thank you to the Film Board of Canada. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think it's a really good cast overall, and. 
we didn't really say very much about Stuart Wilson as Raphael Montero, but like I think he's a really solid villain. I think he's yeah, no, he's like he does again does what he sa- it says on the tin. Like he's menacing and like you're rooting against him and you yeah. want to see him defeated. Like he but does you also believe he, that he, like he thinks he's doing the right thing. Yeah, to a certain extent, or like you know he's seeking glory. He wants to be remembered. Yeah. That kind of thing. But like his scheme is like not that evil. He wants an independent California, and you know. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, and he's not like, and he's not like scenery chewing. Yeah. Like he's not like mustache twirling. It could have gone really far in one direction to right. be like overly melodramatic, and he plays it str- straight enough that it, you know, like I said, you're rooting against him, but he's not an unbelievable villain. Yeah. Well, I feel like you know this is an action movie, and we haven't really talked <laughs> at all about the action. I want to talk about the sword fighting, please, because the sword fighting in this movie is so good. Yeah. And I f***ing love sword fights. Me too. I, it's a shit, like, we don't get them anymore because everything's always about guns and all this shit. When Nate and I were in high school, I didn't preface you that we were going to talk about this, but <laughs> when Nate and I were in high school, there was a production of Hamlet that was being oh. put on, and Nate, Nate was cast as Hamlet. And he asked me to also be in the show because I didn't want to be. And he said, I've spoken to the director and you can play. Is it Laertes? Is that? Uh, I can't remember. I think so. I can't remember. Yeah, my Shakespeare is not as good as it once was. But anyway, it's I was basically going to be cast as the character who comes back at the end of the play to fight Hamlet. Right. And the way you convinced me to, to take the role was you said, you can play Laertes, and we'll get to have a big sword fight. And I was like, okay, well, if we get to have a sword fight, then I'll do the show. I know the way to um, your heart. What can I say? Yeah, exactly. And that literally was the only appealing thing to me was like, okay, if I get to have a badass sword fight sequence, I'll do it. So I let the director know that I will be in her show. And then a week later, Nate tells me he's dropping out. And I don't remember what oh. excuse he gave. But it was a pretty generic enough excuse that I couldn't use the same one to get out of it. I think it it was because I I was, like, overloaded. (laughs) I was just too busy. Yeah, you were like, my parents said I'm too busy. And I was like, you asshole. Um, Now, I didn't want to be in this thing in the first place, and now you've gotten me roped into it. Anyway, long story short, I I did manage to find a way to get out of it. We did not end up being in Hamlet, which then became a gender swapped but also not like it wasn't gender swapped they split the role of hamlet yeah they were twins hamlet was twins a male and female set of fraternal twins yes uh it was yeah it was quite the production but anyway sword fights (laughs) super cool love them and they are so good in this the thing that sticks in my mind is that training montage with banderas and hopkins when he's sort of like trying to teach him and then of course you know the line of lesson number one never attack in anger it's so good. It's so good. Yeah. No, 100%. I mean, it's it's amazing. And, like, there, I think this might be one of the single best sword fighting movies ever. Yeah. Like, no, I, the only I really thing, can't the, think of another one. That the only has, thing for me yeah. that would give it a run for its money is Princess Bride. You know, sure. like that great sequence where Wesley reveals that he's been fighting with his right hand, but he's left-handed or vice versa or whatever, and right. then he's, like, even better. Like, that's the only other sword fight in my mind that tops this. Sure. But it's just every single sword fight in this thing. We alluded to it earlier, like, when he's in the courtyard and he basically single-handedly has to fight, you know, all of these guards. Like, it's just, it's so visceral. Yeah. Like, it's just, you don't get that with 
modern movie because again modern movies are either like fisticuffs or, or like gunplay yeah and gunplay is so unintimate whereas like sword fighting is like this sort of like that's the whole thing is like it's so one-on-one and so like it's almost like a contact sport it's just i yeah. love it so much yeah I, has, more movies need sword fights it has more in common with like a martial arts movie than totally. you know a lot of contemporary action and yeah i love that because the action is so clean it is so intimate, and you can kind of see everything that's going on. And it's very athletic. It's very like yeah, um, and well, it's like a dance, dance, like you said. Yeah. It's it's yeah, and that's you know, I have such an appreciation for that. Yeah, I mean, I think my favorite action sequences in this. I mean, again, like you could pick almost any sword fight out of this and be like, that sword fight's amazing. That's the best one. Um, yeah. So I wanted to call out some of the other things that maybe are not as obvious, I guess, on the surface of this movie. So there are two main things. One of them is all the stuff with the horses. Because um, mm. there's that whole sequence, like, I guess he's, like, escaped, and the guards come out on horseback, and they're chasing him. And he, of course, tries to get on his horse, Tornado. Tornado does not <laughs> cooperate, because Tornado never cooperates. And so of he course. has to steal a horse from one of the guards. And so right. he, like, steals a horse from the guard at the very back of the pack, and then, like, progressively works his way up the ranks to the one at the front. And, yeah, and the yeah, whole yeah. time he's doing all this trick riding where he's riding backwards he's like standing on top of two horses and then jumping onto another horse and just like yeah, all this so stuff good. again it's stuff you never see in movies anymore i don't really get that it's super impressive to watch the other scene that i love that kind of has a bit of everything i feel like if i had to pick one sequence out of this movie and just be like that's the one that encapsulates everything it's the scene where he steals the horse the first yes, time yes that was the one i was going to reference like that scene is it's that brilliant blend of like action and comedy yes. and like it's also driving the story but like there's not a wasted shot or moment in that sequence like it's so good. Yes. And it's like there's the horse inside the horse is bucking and there's chaos and then like once the fighting starts I think for whatever reason he's been disarmed, right? And so yeah. the really interesting thing about this to me is that like I feels like a Jackie Chan movie. Where totally where he's yeah. he's suddenly doing all this improvisational fighting where he's grabbing yeah. like maybe a saddle or bullhorns or something. He's fighting with yeah. the bullhorns. He's catching their swords in between the bars of the prison. I I love that moment. Yeah, like all that cool stuff. And then like there's the big guy and he has to fight the big guy with and, the cannonballs. Yeah, yeah he uses and the cannonballs the to knock them out. And then he like blows them all up with the cannon. Right and. Yeah. Antonio Banderas's performance when he has the cannon and his sort of <laughs> hand gestures and everything are so <laughs> funny. I laughed oh out loud watching him just like do that. Um, yeah. And then like it leads into a whole other sequence in the church where, you know, between him and Elena and then he gets away and he's trying to jump from the roof onto the horseback and the horse won't cooperate yeah. and he falls. It's just like it's yeah. like it hits all of the all of the notes, you know, and you get some of those like beautiful 90s explosions where it's like they clearly took a set and then just were like, we're blowing it up, yeah. guys. And like they blow it up and then like there's flames everywhere. Like it's just like the moment where he's running with like the powder keg and then he realizes right. that the powder keg is actually ripping out the back and so then he's like run it i mean it's just yeah it's that whole sequence is just like a perfect blend of action comedy and story yes and is that's what to me makes this film so special is the way it's able to do all of those things yeah totally and apparently so campbell uh, sort of acknowledges that like jackie chan was sort of an influence on some of the scenes oh, in this interesting. Movie. you mentioned the training sequence the scene yeah. where he's sort of doing push-ups over top of candles 
Yes. Right? And Anthony Hopkins has his legs up on his back. That's actually yeah. straight out of a Jackie Chan movie. Snake in the Eagle's Shadow. So it's, okay. it's like a 1970s movie. So I think that's pretty right. early. And it's like exactly the same setup, basically. Oh, interesting. Um, and I guess later Campbell would actually do a movie with Jackie Chan called The Foreigner. Yes. Yeah, The Foreigner. So yeah. kind of interesting. Like clearly he, you know, respects what Jackie Chan brought to action movies, which is, it's all the things you just said. The combination of action, humor, story, and character, too. Yeah. Right. And that's all on display here. So I yeah, absolutely I think that that sequence really captures what this movie is all about. The other scene that stuck out for me is just the intro of so like you have the intro scene where, you know, the little boys are watching Zorro and all that at the beginning. Yeah, there's sort of like the 18 minute prologue right. setting up sort of Anthony Hopkins. character. Right. Exactly. And then you have the time jump 20 years ahead. Right. Yeah. And immediately you have Alejandro, you have Joaquin, and you have Three Finger Jack, and they're wandering through the desert. And Three Finger <laughs> so, Jack, the scene is so yeah, good. Yeah, he's he's on horseback, and the other two are sort of like tagging along behind. They're tied up, right? And to me, this seems like it's ripped completely out of a Sergio Leone movie. It is a classic. Li- and, and, and this, I'm showing my note where it says. Jack feels like a Nate favorite. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I, could, ju- I totally. could just tell this sequence was like, yeah, this is definitely right up Nate's alley. So, like, number one, all of Sergio Leone's westerns have this sort of setup of having the character introduction scene. Right. And usually it's fairly slow moving and you're not 100% sure what's going on. And, right. and, like, that's exactly what happens in this, where it's like, at first it appears that the brothers are three-finger jack's prisoners and then they get to town and it all gets turned on its head and it turns out that it's a big scam that they're all pulling on everyone else right that's which i had completely forgotten about yes so like when the reveal was done i was like oh that's so good yes like i was bought into a hook line and sinker Mm -hmm. i mean they're cheating a little bit like which i don't love when movies do that but like (laughs) it's fine because it the payoff is so what are they cheating about you mean well because i feel like there's before they even get to town Jack is treating them like prisoners, which he wouldn't have to do because, right. like, they're not there yet, so it doesn't make sense. Like, Sure, sure. But, like, again, that's just nitpicking. Yeah, yeah. It, it, like, it's fine. Yeah. That reminded me so much of those movies, and, of course, you know I'm a, a sucker for those movies. So yeah, just yes, the, you, absolutely. the way that all plays out, the sort of set pieces of it, you know, all of the guards tied to the cactus naked. Uh, just, oh, yeah. <laughs> all of that stuff is just so perfect. The one scene we didn't talk about, and this kind of leads into my next question about just Alejandro and Elena, right? We talked about both of them independently, but they right. have this romance in this movie. And obviously the most famous scene probably from this movie is their sword fight, which happens yes. at the end of like when he's breaking into the hacienda. He's fighting all of the guards and he finally sort of escapes into the stables, I guess. But yep. then Elena's there and tries to stop him. And they have the sword fight where they uh, cut each other's clothes <laughs> off. And it's yeah. uh, very sexy. And horny 10-year-old Adam very much enjoyed that scene in the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> Do you surrender? Never. But I may scream. Well, I mean, it's a good scene. It's a really it's good, a good scene. It's a good scene. Um, it's a good scene. It holds up. But so what do you think about their romance in this? I mean, it's... Uh... Like any of these kind of movies, I I buy it in so much as I'm supposed to buy it. Like, if I think about it too hard, like, it probably doesn't really make a lot of sense. And, like, it, he's just supposed to be so charming that she's totally okay with him. Like, it doesn't necessarily pass the smell test if you really overanalyze it. But at the same time, like, you have to recognize that this is a throwback to 
those swashbuckling movies of the 30s and 40s and that's part of the trope and so i have no issue with it like to bring it back to bond campbell does a much better job of dealing with this sort of relationship in casino royale with mm-hmm. vesper and bond than maybe you know True. natalia and bond in goldeneye or whatever but i don't know you know what if 1998 antonio banderas cuts off michaels i'd probably be a little bit charmed too so <laughs> yeah no he's very he's very handsome i mean i am all in i'm all yeah. in on it i don't think about it at all because no. it's all in the acting I think is the yeah. thing. They are both so good independently and they have a lot of chemistry together and they're able to pull off the physicality of all of this stuff, the humor of it and everything. Like I always buy that they're both really turned on by each other. Well, <laughs> you know, I, you know, not God, I keep bringing this back to bond, but like the difference here is that they're not just casting a model yeah. who can't act, but is easy on the eyes. Like she's a classically trained British theater actor. Yeah. Like, she can act. You've got the strength of her acting abilities mm-hmm. to make this sort of what could be a flimsy relationship a little bit more believable because they are both such strong actors. Yeah. No, 100%. I mean, I could I could watch it all day. Yeah. If Isabella Scapuro or whatever her name is was cast, no disrespect, I don't know that it would have been as believable. Like, I think they made the right call in bringing her in. Yeah. Again, like, I find it hard to imagine anyone else in these two roles because the chemistry between them and the way they interact is just perfect for this movie, basically. Even though, (laughs) yes, just casting issues aside. So the other component that I'm curious about, we talked a little bit about the plot being kind of this, you know... (laughs) It doesn't totally matter, but, like, what do you think about Raphael's evil scheme? Not to sound like a broken record, but, like, it feels like a Bond villain plot. Mm -hmm. Like, this idea of, like, okay, I'm going to buy back California using gold that he technically owns. Yeah, it's like Goldfinger plot. Like, it's silly, MacGuffin-y kind of nonsense that... it, It works for the purposes of driving the narrative forward, but, like... At the end of the day, like, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's kind of silly and kind of stupid, but I don't care. Like, I'm not watching this movie for the plot. I'm watching it for the action. And then it turns out I'm also watching it for, like, the really well-developed and entertaining characters. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I mostly agree. I think this plot is kind of like what the Simpsons are getting at with their parody. Yes. Is just like, it's hard because this is supposed to be a historical drama, you know, almost. And so they're sort of like using elements of history, but if you actually like think about it too hard, it doesn't really make any sense. The dates don't really line up and like, you know, the geography is a little bit like iffy. And so it's just like, you know, you just can't think about it too much is the bottom line. (laughs) And if you don't, then it's kind of like, yeah. No, and I I didn't, and I had no problem with it as a result. I think like the key thing with these plots and the reason why both like Bond movies and this are so plotty, I think is because part of the action or the excuse to keep the action going is that the hero has to uncover what the scheme is. And so it has to be complex enough that you can have multiple set pieces that uncover pieces of the scheme. Right. Yeah. And in a Bond movie, it has to be complex enough to take you to 17 different locations (laughs) because we need to show off Jamaica and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But which actually, which thankfully this film doesn't have. Like, I'm glad that it's a little more self-contained. Me too. Yeah, exactly. I I was going to say, like, I think it's a lot easier to follow and they can do a lot more with the characters and 
all of that mm-hmm. because they're not globetrotting all the time and trying to explain all of those sort of moves all the time, which actually yeah. I feel like Casino Royale, as I recall, is kind of similar in that, right? Like a lot of it takes place around the card game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, the opening is in a different glo- place. and then Yeah, I mean, it is kind of all over the place. Like uh, it's yeah. in Haiti, it's in Florida, it's in Montenegro. Okay, it's, okay. So it does move around quite a bit, but... For a Bond movie, I think, yes, it doesn't move it around as much right. as others necessarily do. Or it's just like, again, it's better written than most <laughs> yeah. of them. So Maybe I just like, don't notice it as much. That that helps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Okay. I feel like that's most of the movie, but what do you think about the ending? The climax and the, you know, the denouement, the wrap-up of everything. You know, it's funny because I didn't really remember the ending. Mm-hmm. I knew that the heroes saved the day or whatever. Right. If I had one complaint with the movie, it's that maybe that final act gets a little action set piece heavy Mm -hmm. to the point where it kind of gets a little muddy of like too much is happening. And it's like the wrap up of these various stories gets a little complicated. You have to tie up the loose ends of Diego's story and then you've got to tie up the loose ends of Alejandro's story. And then also all the stuff with um, Catherine's... What is her name again? (laughs) Elena, with Elena's story. So it's like, there's a lot of balls in the air, which I feel like they have to sort of like... So I I do think that the ending is maybe the murkiest part of the whole thing. And then, of course, you have the sort of happy ending, the resolution, sort of throwback reference to... Elena as a a baby and, and Diego, you know, telling the story to the baby. We get that with Alejandro. So, yeah, I... I, again, I don't know that I care because, like, on the whole, like, everything just works for me. But I wouldn't necessarily say that I find the end sequence to be, like, satisfying in the way that, say, like, a like a Mission Impossible ending is. Right. Or even, you know, some of the better Bond endings. Mm-hmm. It just kind of feels like action. You know, it's not egregious like a Marvel final act is where it's just like now it's just aliens hitting each other right but it isn't like that satisfying conclusion of like ah that was like yes i got everything reminds me reminds me a bit of the climax from you only live twice where there's just a whole bunch Mm. of crap going on and and it's like a big set piece which is really cool and there's like you know ninjas bombs are going on yeah like whatever yeah people are getting crushed by gold bars and yeah right right it's there's a lot of stuff going on i'm sure these are all being done with like miniatures or whatever but it's all being put together in such a fashion that like oh. i totally buy all of it there are so. no miniatures my friend okay it's well all then built, all actually <laughs> built which is wild crazy they built miniatures wild. to test everything but then it's all the real deal and then of course you end with a huge explosion you know because it's the 90s but that's it like the resolution to a lot of these plot lines are someone gets killed right like that's the resolution right. it's not that sort of you know, strongly written conclusion right. they, to these. They to get these revenge, arcs. and that's kind of it. Yeah, and then and you know, and then Elena and and Alejandro kind of get together, and Anthony Hopkins sort of like puts their hand together as he's dying, and is you know yeah. like encouraging them to get together and all that. And we set up for the sequel. Right, right. Yes, exactly. But one of the reasons I wanted to talk about the ending is that there were some alternative endings as well. Oh, um, interesting. Which is interesting. So. In the original ending that they shot, what happens is Alejandro and Elena, they free the prisoners, right? And you see a shot of this. You know the shot where they're kind of walking towards the camera. It's very compressed, and all the prisoners are behind them, and they're kind of walking through the dust. 
So that's, I believe, from this original ending. And what happens is they, like, escape and they're walking through the desert. And Santa Ana, who is this Mexican general that you've been hearing about the whole time. Right. right. He's going to come to California and make it part of Mexico. They run into him in the desert and he's, like, going the other way. And, you know... Basically, it's like, okay, cool. You know, Santa Ana is here to save the day. California is going to become part of Mexico. And then Alejandro and Elena kiss, and that's it. That, that was the original okay. ending. It's a very Robin Hood ending, because, like, at the end of, you know, traditional Robin Hood stories, like, uh, King... Is it King Richard? He's been missing the entire time in the story, and then he finally comes back at the end right, and then, right. like, forgives Robin Hood, and he and Maid Marian ride off into the sunset. Sure, yeah, it's so, the yeah. restoration of order sort of ending, right? right. Didn't work well in screen tests. <laughs> well, yeah, understand. Yeah, the audience was like, well, I don't give a shit. I mean, it's like you're introducing a new character in the last five seconds of this movie, basically. Like, yeah, hey, you've been hearing about him, but, like, who cares about Santa Ana? Right? Yeah, unless he's played by Sean Connery. Right, I exactly. don't care about this character. Exactly. So basically, they reshot it with this bookend that you were talking about, where okay. where they recreate one of the first scenes right. of the movie, but with yeah. the younger characters. Uh, so they reshot that in a day. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and the other interesting part about that was that the producers wanted it to turn out that Diego didn't die. No, of course. Right? Because that sounds like the producers would want. Right? Yeah, of course. And so, but Campbell, to his credit, maybe this is one of the reasons why he shot it in a day, he shot the version that you see in the movie and showed it to Mm -hmm. the producers to convince them not to do it, basically. Uh, And they went with it. And so, like, that's the ending you see. And honestly, like, I think it's pretty good. Like, I think the the bookend is very effective because it's like you've kind of forgotten about that scene by that point. And so it's like, it feels like a very satisfying full circle sort of moment. Uh, Yeah, it's a sweet little button on the story and ties everything together. Yeah, and And you get to see Antonio Antonio Banderas sword fight with a bouquet of flowers. Continues to be charming right to the end. God, he's so goddamn charming. Like, oh my God. I understand why Madonna wanted to f*** his brains out in Truth or Dare. Um, Have you seen them? Have you seen that documentary? No. Yeah, so, like, it's in, like, uh, God, we're really going off track, but in the Madonna Truth or Dare documentary, it's her mid-80s tour, and Antonio Banderas, like, he's been in a bunch of stuff, but he's not even in the mainstream yet, Okay, and, like, the voiceover narration is she's like... There's this like beautiful Spanish man at this party. His name is Antonio Banderas. He's going to be a star, and I just want to f- his brains out or something like that. And it's like, yeah, understandable. Uh, yeah, like I kind of do too. Fair enough, like, Madonna. Yeah, um, yeah, but yeah, he. Oh man, he's so good in this movie. He is. So yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. I mean, I again, like, yes, like I agree that the the sort of final set piece feels almost too big for the movie like would have rather had another really great sword fight and that's yeah that's just like a more contained thing or something like that but you know what it is like i want the inigo montoya meeting the six-fingered man and defeating him moment right we get in princess bride where it's like it feels like a proper conclusion to this character's arc yes where in this it's just like some people get blown up, some people get shot, some people, like, and I think part of this stems from the fact that we've got these two Zoros to deal with. <laughs> right. It's like, how do you sort of deliver a satisfying ending for both? And I think it kind of suffers as a result. Yeah, yeah, that's But fair. on the whole, the film still works. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, the first, like, three quarters of the movie is, like, so back-to-back unbelievably excellent that I'm kind of like, 
yeah, whatever. The ending's the ending. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it, it, yeah. And then I'll they all it. lived happily ever after. Fine. <laughs> you yeah. know. Great. So, Adam, were there any moments that felt like Simpsons jokes but aren't? Yeah, you alluded to it earlier, but when they tie the sort of like, they're not bandits, but like the group of guys, they're nude and they're tied to the cacti. Right. And <laughs> and all, like that felt very Simpson-y, like especially because the Simpsons love to show bare bottoms, or at least they yes. did back when they were allowed to. When drunk Antonio Banderas meets Anthony Hopkins in the city mm-hmm. and they sort of like fight, that fight has like moments that feel kind of slapsticky and Simpson-y, specifically when Antonio... <laughs> when um, Antonio Banderas gets kicked in the balls by Anthony Hopkins, which is just like the idea that like here's this prestigious actor and he's like <laughs> literally kicking a guy in the balls. George C. Scott in Man Getting Hit by Football. Ah, my groin. And then there's a great line. Well, actually, here you pointed it out, so I'll let yes. you. But I did also write this down. This is. I think it's the funniest line in the movie. They're starting the whole training sequence. And Anthony Hopkins says to Antonio Banderas, do you even know how to use that thing? Talking about the sword. And uh, Antonio Banderas says, yes. The pointy end goes into the other man. This is going to take a lot of work. (laughs) Yeah. But the delivery is like, it's so perfect. Both of them. It is one of my favorite lines in the whole thing. It is pitch perfect comedy, pitch perfect delivery, and very Simpson-y. Yes, totally. I mean, yes. I I felt like that one felt like the most Simpsons-ish moment to me. And it also, like, reminds me of something that Antonio Banderas said in one of the interviews was just a lot of the comedy of the movie comes out of the sort of different personas of Antonio Banderas Mm. and Anthony Hopkins, of Anthony Hopkins being this sort of, like, he's really putting on his most prestigious self, right? Like, most respected, charming reserved sort of personality and Antonio Banderas is going so big and so clownish and buffoonish and just like the counterpoint between the two of them is so great and that scene just kind of captures it perfectly. So Nate, how did this movie do? Because I mean, obviously it got a sequel, Mm -hmm. but like we didn't get a slew of Zorro movies for the next 20, 30 years. So I, you know, did it not, was it not super successful or like what happened? So it did pretty well, particularly when you look at the international box office, which is kind of interesting. So the budget, I think I said for this movie was $95 million. Um, Yeah. That's not insignificant. Yes. And the domestic box office was $94 million. Ooh. So so it didn't quite recoup its its budget. Domestically, but, yeah, but yeah. then the international box office on top of that is 156 million dollars. So total, oh wow, it breaks okay. 250 million worldwide. But again, you know, you can see why these studios are, you know, eventually look at these big action blockbusters and are like, Phew. you know, like for a minute there, that's that, yeah, that's <laughs> a lot of money to spend for Americans yeah. not to go, yeah, let's let's do this. Right, right. And so it's a big gamble every time these movies get made, right? And granted, as we said, like, 98, like, you're up against Titanic. So, right. like, maybe that's, you know, playing into it a little bit. Like, timing-wise, yes. this just didn't quite land at the right spot. But, you know, $250 million is not <laughs> Nothing to, anything to shake a stick totally, at. Totally, so. totally. Yeah, and I think that's the thing is there were a lot of action movies around this moment in time too. oh absolutely so yeah. it's like you know probably at the time it's like even if people liked it a lot of people probably were like yeah well you know it's another action movie and you kind of take totally. it for granted but 
I think in retrospect, it's one of the best of the 90s. In terms of critical response, I think it's mostly pretty positive, but doesn't really get a lot of awards recognition. I mean, you know? Good Morning America loved it, <laughs> I so. heard that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> great, loved it, or whatever they said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like at the Academy Awards, they just get the sound nods. Golden Globes was nominated for Best Motion Picture Comedy or Musical, which is a real sort of testament to the value of, at that point at least, having those two different streams. Um, Yeah, absolutely. uh, Lost to Shakespeare in Love, which also won the Best Picture of the Academy Awards that year. Right. And Antonio Banderas was also nominated for Best Performance, Comedy or Musical, and lost to Michael Caine in Little Voice, which... Never seen that movie doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah like what the f- okay, sure. I think it's a British movie, which is probably why and, I'm not familiar with fair. it. Fair, but yeah, real shame. I mean, again, like I think it's a, a a phenomenal performance and maybe an underrated performance in a lot of ways. Yeah, but yeah, so kind of middle of the pack, right? Like not terrible, but also not amazing, and didn't get the kind of recognition that like some of the movies we've been talking about did, where it just. Racked up awards, is on all the top 100 lists and all that kind of stuff. This is not that movie. I mean, and if nothing else, like, it hasn't been rebooted in the last 15 years. Yeah. So, like, that that kind of is your indicator of the level of success is, like, if it did well enough, it would have been rebooted by now. I mean, I guess, like, in some respect, Pirates kind of, in a weird way, especially knowing that it's, like, written by the same writing yes. team or, like among others like that kind of was its own reboot in a way of like it inherited what this was putting down yeah, in a lot so of ways and was so running the table on this for so long that i think people yeah, probably I mean, how many of like, those movies have come out now like six or seven something like that something like that and i recently rewatched most of them except for the last one because i watched the second last one and was like wow i don't think i can do another one of these but like the first one and the third one pretty good pretty good yeah i've seen the first and second one and then when the runtime started to creep into like (laughs) godfather territory i was like yeah is this worth a godfather worth of time no not nothing very few movies are and this absolutely isn't so okay well so like nate like what do you think it's pretty clear we both really like this movie but i'm still gonna officially ask you do you think the strengths outweigh the weaknesses? Like, would you recommend this movie? I mean, yes. I would recommend yeah. that you watch this movie and then watch this movie again a year from now and then a year after that and a year after that because it is, like, in my opinion, one of the best comfort food kind of movies that you could watch. You will be entertained. You will not really have to think that much, but you will be, like, wowed. Yeah, I mean, what else do I say? Like, performances are great. The visuals are great. The sound is great. The score is great. The action is great. The stunts are great. Like, yeah, I I 100% recommend this. What about you? Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've only seen it twice. I had so much fun rewatching this the other night. I've talked about this before. This is definitely a movie that, like, I can't wait to watch with my son one day. Mm -hmm. And I think, unlike some of the other stuff, like, you know... As much as I loved The Karate Kid, The Karate Kid does feel like an 80s movie. Yeah. Like, I feel like this is one of those movies that even, like, in 10 years from now, I could sit down with my kid and watch, and it's not going to feel like a 30-year-old, 40-year-old movie. Mm -hmm. Again, speaking to that whole idea of, like, it doesn't have weird, dodgy 90s CGI, but the effects and spectacle are still super heightened. So, like, I think it's going to stand the test of time as a result of that. Mm -hmm. I think of other movies from this era that I've watched, like, 
hundreds of times. Like, the first Mission Impossible movie, for me, is one of those comfort movies. Like, I watched that over and over again as a kid. Mm -hmm. Had I seen this movie at that time, I, I could totally have seen this being one of those movies. I definitely think that I will end up rewatching it. I like I don't own this, but I think I'm gonna have to pick up the like 4K Blu-ray next time it goes on sale because like it feels like something I should have in my collection. Like I yeah. really, really, really enjoyed it, even on rewatch. That says a lot because you know if I'm willing to drop thirty bucks on a Blu-ray, that yeah. that tells you. Something. I don't think you've said that about any of the movies we watched so far. That's true. I, I mean, now granted, one? that's because I, I think I own a lot of them already. But um, <laughs> fair enough. Th- those that I don't, uh, you know, I'm no paint your I'm wagon right now. Nate. I, yeah, no paint your wagon. No, has the nutty not been professor. The collection. No. I, I would have added best little whorehouse if I could actually find that movie. <laughs> but you know, it's next to impossible to find. Weird. So um, such a weird movie. So. Adam, what would you recommend for another movie that, like, you know, sort of feels like it's in the same mm-hmm. family here? You know, I've alluded to two of these already. The, for me, The Princess Bride is very much in the same vein. It is a swashbuckler. Mm-hmm. It is family-friendly. Admittedly, it feels a little more dated. The score in that movie is especially very mm-hmm. dated. But to me, you know, if you were to ask me to name a perfect movie, Princess Bride is one of the first things that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. I have no flaw. I think that movie is flawless. I've seen it so many times. I adore it. Mm-hmm. It leans more into the comedy than this does. Sure. But if you like this and you haven't seen The Princess Bride, well, first of all, if you haven't seen The Princess Bride, what's wrong with you? But <laughs> um, Another one that feels very sort of in line of this sort of like 90s action adventure tone is The Mummy mm-hmm. with Brendan Fraser, which I mentioned earlier. That one's got a little bit more of that sort of dodgy 90s CGI, oh, right. but... I watched that for the first time last summer oh. in preparation for doing this Brendan Fraser tribute mm-hmm. and was really surprised at how much I enjoyed that. And he, like, again, you want to talk about incredibly charming yeah. lead performance. He is so good in that movie. Totally. Like, he's absolutely up there with, like, the kind of performance that Banderas is getting. And then in terms of, like, weird 90s IP-based action adventures... <laughs> I would recommend The Shadow, yeah. I, which is a movie that I adore, but talk about a movie that doesn't exist. Very few people know about that movie, which is totally understandable, but I love that movie. Um, I think you introduced me to that movie. Probably, because, like, <laughs> who else would have introduced you to that movie? Like, it's based on a 1930s pulp serial comic slash novel slash radio series that Orson Welles starred in. Right. And was written by the guy who wrote the first Mission Impossible movie and Jurassic Park. Sort of of that, like, oh, the kids love Batman. That must mean they love all those old radio <laughs> Yeah, like taking all of the wrong right. lessons from Batman. Yes. But very, like, it's, it was totally, like, cool that's exactly what it was. There were action figures, which I, I think a lot of them were even canceled. And then, like, were sold in bargain bins at wow. Toys R Us. But because I knew what the shadow was i bought them yeah like it is a bizarre movie and like alec baldwin is the lead hero in it tim curry's in it like oh and um gandalf uh ian mckellen is in it playing like an american scientist like yeah it's a weird movie but like i love it so yeah if you're into this sort of like misguided 90s action adventure movies based on 30s IP that nobody really cared about, definitely check out the show. Very specific. Uh, What about you? What would you suggest? Yeah, I mean, it's obvious, but like the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, like I said, I rewatched these recently. 
that's a great movie. The first one feels big like this movie does, right? It right. has the sets, it has the costumes, it has the scale, it has amazing stunts and choreography. I still think this is a better movie in some ways, but I think Pirates is still really, really solid. I would also say, again, having rewatched most of the series, the third one is a sleeper, and I would okay. I would recommend it. It's Interesting. weird. It's very weird. That's still Gore Verbinski, yes. so it's still like the same... And written by Ted Elliott and Terry yeah, Ross. It kind of feels the like the end of a trilogy. Team. Right. Right. Because I think it's the last one with Kira Knightley. Yeah. And Orlando Bloom. Um, right. Okay. And like a lot of the imagery in that one is really like kind of psychedelic and crazy. But I think it's actually really fun and romantic and all those things. So I, I'd recommend checking that one out. The second one doesn't do anything for me. No. So I had only seen the first one. And then visual effects people love the second one because right. Bill Nighy as Davy Jones. Like, sure. And, impressive. Admittedly. Like, like the, the, very impressive. But I watched that movie last summer and I was like, this movie sucks. Like, why do people <laughs> like this movie? It's terrible. It's way too long. Yeah. It's not good. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll have to go back and because I haven't seen the first one since it first came out. Yeah. And I've never seen the third one, so maybe I'll have to check those out on the old Disney Plus. Yeah, yeah. well, that's the other thing, is if you have Disney Plus, it's really easy to watch. I, I think I saw all of the first three in theaters and then dropped off after Okay. That. The third one is 169 minutes, though, which, that's too long, mate. All right. That's, that's too long. But if you say it's a sleeper, I, I believe It's you. weird enough to keep your attention, I think. And also, okay. yeah, it still has some of that good action and stuff. The other thing, this is sort of like on my watch list, because I have not seen it. But I've heard from many people that Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, is very good. My boss at work said it's the best movie he's seen all That's year. Like what I'm here. People love, people love this, this movie. movie. So, you know, let's go support Antonio Banderas and watch Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, I guess. Um, but yeah, haven't seen that one, so I can't really recommend it. But I, I have heard from all corners that it's very, very good. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I will also add that to my... Maybe this weekend I will tuck into a little adventure with the old puss in boots that sounds like a euphemism yeah it really does um well that brings us to the end of this episode of the springfield google plus the movie podcast for simpson fans if you enjoyed what you heard please do leave a review share this episode with simpson fans and film buffs in your life it really does mean a lot to us if you could share and like and subscribe and all of that stuff and then as we like to say around these parts until next time we'll see you around the plex See you around the planks. Hey, you go, Doro! And we are recording. Uh, I'm pretty sure yeah. Alan, yeah, Alan Rickman plays um, yes. the yeah, sheriff yeah. of Nottingham. Right. Morgan right. Freeman. Which is probably great. Is, yeah, no, he's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Morgan Freeman's in it, and um, the young guy who looks like Jack Nicholson but isn't Jack Nicholson. <laughs> from, oh, that's, um, I don't know who you're talking about there. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Um, okay. okay, what's his name? <laughs> Christian Slater. Oh, you think he looks like Jack Nicholson? Is that 100% a thing? he looks like Jack Nicholson. That's like totally a thing that like huh. young Christian Slater was okay. looked like young Jack Nicholson. Anyway. Wow.